This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumablet. And I'm Yannick Magnin. And I don't think our topic needs an introduction because we've been talking, we've been seeing it for the last few episodes. But in case you missed the last few episodes, what our topic about this week, Yannick? Final Fantasy VII. Good. But before we start, I think you have some follow-up. Yep. Just one brief item. Uh, of course, it's about episode two. Of course, it's always <laughs> about episode two. Uh, episode two was about mobile payments. and It's been a while, though, since we have follow-up about mobile payment. That's true. And there's going to be more follow-up in the coming uh, months because of something I'll reveal in a little bit. Um, but Apple Card is currently rolling out over the course of the month. Uh, and friend of the show, Richard Whitaker, was wondering if we were going to cover that on the show anytime soon. Uh, a lot of Apple-related media has been talking about how Apple Card impacts the credit card industry in various countries, and he wanted to know our take as Canadians. Um, I don't have anything to say about it in the short term. To me, it, Apple Card in general isn't really as interesting a topic as mobile payments was in episode two, because that had a pretty interesting hook, which is why did it take North America 10 years to catch up to Japan's mobile payment ecosystem that has been working great for 10 years? and. Uh, Kind of ironically, since we did that episode, Japan has sort of gone into the opposite direction where like now they're introducing weird shitty QR code payment systems that people are into and it's really weird. Um, but I struggle to find a very uh, similar interesting hook for Apple Card because fundamentally there's nothing really technologically interesting about Apple Card or really historically notable about it. At this point in time, it's just another credit card to me, as far as I'm concerned. Um, maybe as we get more hands-on reports from people who have given, uh, who have gotten access to Apple Card, we'll have more juicy details to dissect, or maybe more interesting features around Apple Card will be introduced. Um, but for now, don't expect anything about Apple Card in the short term, because especially like if I wanted to talk about how it fits into the Canadian credit card industry, like I don't fucking know. I don't keep up <laughs> with the Canadian credit card industry. I barely appreciate the concept of credit cards i if i could buy stuff online without having one i probably would and that's sort of my opinion about credit cards but it we will definitely be talking about it eventually it's just not in the short term short term uh the other thing i did want to mention about mobile payments is uh this week i booked my plane tickets to go to japan and both of my devices now, my iPhone and my Apple Watch, are able to use Suica natively now. So I will be able to Ooh. try that out for the first time uh, instead of tapping the button on my friend's wrist and having them tap yeah. into the thing, which is not quite as exciting. I was about to say, and then not steal your friend's phone or watch and then do it with theirs. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of that travel, uh, Lucadivi and I will be traveling at the end of October and early November, so we're going to be taking a short hiatus after the release of episode 123 on October 13th, and we will return with episode 124 on November 24th. Uh, so we're pre-announcing that today because we're going to be out and about. Yeah, it's, 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 it is a bit early, but since Yannick booked his ticket uh, in the past few days, uh, we assume that it will be a good time to announce it. So Yannick is going back to Japan, and I'll be spending some time at Disney World. So so it's going to be a fun time. I, I guess what we also what also Yannick realized today is that we will be celebrating uh, the five-year anniversary of this podcast on vacation apart from each other and not recording which is a strange way to say it but that's life yep and one of the funny things is when i was looking at uh the show notes for episode two earlier 
I noticed that episode one was about iOS 8, and I was like, shit, iOS 8, <laughs> that was forever ago. It was forever ago. Oh, yes, I remember this episode. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so that's it. Now we can go into the main topic. So, Final Fantasy VII. Why Final Fantasy VII? Uh, so, 16-bit and 32-bit era JRPGs are a huge blind spot in my video game experience. And as I mentioned on our Game of the Year episode uh, last year... I wanted to make a concerted effort to play through more PlayStation-era RPGs this year. And originally, I had no real intention of playing FF7, which is probably going to sound a little weird to people who have played a lot of PlayStation RPGs, because a lot of people say that is the PlayStation RPG, but I wasn't that interested in checking out FF7 in the first place. However, I ran into some trouble trying to acquire a copy of Final Fantasy VIII earlier this year. It took me, like, months to try and acquire a copy of FF8, which is baffling to me that this happens but basically somebody took my money and then i never received a copy of final fantasy 8 and it took me like two months to actually like get my money back from ebay and stuff like that and when i was the done joy of ebay yeah nice. well it's the first time it ever happened to me to be honest so i'm oh, i guess i'm lucky um but then when i finally got my money back i wanted to actually like still buy a f- copy of Final Fantasy VIII. And the cheapest copy I could find at the time was bundled with a copy of Final Fantasy VII International, which is how I wound up with a copy of FF7. And I often talk on the podcast about games from the early 3D console era that people remember fondly. But when revisited today, those games are sort of devoid of any substance, and they only really made an impression on people because they were technically impressive at the time. Cough, cough, the N64. Uh, oh my goodness, <laughs> how we're not going back there. You oh knew I had God. to. <laughs> Oh, can I just quit this podcast now? No, we're not going no. to, uh, we're not going to survive attendees. I'm just quitting now. Uh, so I never played FF7 back in the day. Uh, we were a PlayStation household, but I was way too busy 100% completing the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater games with all the <laughs> characters to give JRPGs any chance of playtime at that time. And one thing that I noticed, like literally tonight as I was finishing up my notes, is we were mostly renting games at the time. And I looked at the back of the box of FF7 and suddenly it all made sense. The back of the box in Final Fantasy VII, like the text was mostly about, oh my God, it's a Final Fantasy game with good graphics and sound. Oh my God. <laughs> and they don't actually wow. say what Final Fantasy is or anything about the story they just say like i think the back of final fantasy 7 had like three quotes saying we've never seen a final fantasy game like this before and shit like that that doesn't mean shit if you don't know what final fantasy is which is exactly what i was at that time so that's probably why i never rented it because i don't have time for boxes that don't actually say what they are <laughs> uh and of course final fantasy 7 definitely struck an emotional chord with a lot of our friends uh, so I've always sort of been a little bit curious if it was as good as everyone said it was, or if it was kind of like Zelda Ocarina of Time, where it's one of those games <laughs> oh that gets overhyped due to nostalgia. Oh my goodness, this episode is going to be something. Straight wow. fire over here. Yes, oh yes, shots <laughs> fired for sure. Uh, wow. So I also knew that Yukari didn't have any experience with FF7, so I pitched this episode to him back in April, and that's why we're here now. So... Before we talk about FF7 proper, I think we should probably talk about our history with Final Fantasy games. Um, do you want me to maybe do a small, uh, what you just described, history about like old games? Because I I can do one quick if you'd like. Sure. Um, it, no, I, I'm more or less saying that because I really like your um, 
kind of your anecdote about you renting games when you were younger because at that time uh as you may have heard from previous uh the games episode uh we were a nintendo 64 household um so the f- not the first console we played to but the first console that was kind of our own quote unquote to my brother and i was the n64 uh, but during that time, since like we had like uh, NES at home and a Sega Master, if I recall correctly, uh, from my dad's youth, uh, or like early twenties, I would put let's put it this way. My dad was also kind of somewhat into video games still, and we were also wanting to play different video games that either they were on the N64 or not. So we end up renting a lot of the time. Uh, PS4, a uh, PS1 setup. I hope uh, it's PS1. <laughs> no, no, it's a PS1. So just, come on. Uh, so I would say that I recall that if we were not renting the PS1, uh, we were renting GoldenEye 64 a lot. I was maybe partly to blame for that. But if you compare with the other game that was uh, being rented because it was selected by my brother, it was fucking Mario Party. And I, oh my goodness, I dislike this game so much i literally ate this game <laughs> because i played it so much when i was younger but all of this is to say is that by renting the whole setup in theory uh, if you own the setup it's easier to just like kind of send back money to the video game location store and then or just like keep the disc and then when you come back you, you just like say oh here's the extra or you call them i know i know the place where i was re- renting a lot of shit they uh, they had this po- i think they had this policy of you can just call and say hey uh we'll keep it for another week and then they were like okay sure and then the next time you'll just pay for the disc and uh, for the extra and all that stuff so for rpgs i feel that that would have been simpler than just paying the extra fee for a whole like system and hopefully they were less flexible when it was a whole system being rented out versus only games so i that's kind of why i feel that some of those like lengthy games that were on the n64 the ps1 uh, and kind of never really played them, even if they considered classics. And there weren't really a lot of RPGs on the N64 because of cartridge size limitations. Whereas mm. RPGs really sort of, especially if you wanted them to be as graphically impressive as they are on PlayStation, like you just couldn't do that on N64. It's part of the developer like talk about uh, Final Fantasy VII was originally supposed to be an N64 game, but then they realized like, no matter what we do, we can't actually get this to work on the N64, so we don't have much of a choice but to go to PlayStation. True, and I guess the, the quote-unquote possible solution was to, was to ship it under cartridge, but even then, like, we all know that the cartridge technology doesn't kind of, from what I understood, it kind of doesn't like odd swapping like we do with discs, so... No, really so, not. Yeah, so uh, I'm not surprised that a lot of those games saw a better fit with uh, CD-based medium like the ps1 was okay so now more specifically like what final fantasy games have you played before i think you've talked to me about having played 10 and maybe 10 too because of the remakes and stuff uh um um, okay um that is also i think why you really wanted that we do this episode because i have no playing experience with final fantasy game whatsoever before playing final fantasy 7 Wait, Though, what? No, no, no. Wait, what? But I, I swear you bought Final Fantasy X, X, II. Did you just buy it and never play it? Let me continue with the story. Oh, my God. <laughs> because, yes, that fact is part of the story. Oh, fuck. So, while being a teenager, 
Some of my friends were big fans, uh, and one of them were my ex. My ex was big, 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 big fan of Final Fantasy X and X2. Mm. So him and his brother were playing it a lot of time. So what happened, more or less, and also he was a big fan of Tales of Games too. Yeah. So for a lot of those games, what happened, I never played through them. I just watched somebody play through it. So I kind of have a, a vague notion of what's happening with the story in Final Fantasy X. There's a guy, there's a girl, they can, like, they need to fall in love, they can't fall in love, and then they separate, and there's a second game, which, which is bad, according to what I remember, because the story is a bit cringy, and that's more or less what I recall about Final Fantasy X. Fast forward a couple of years later, of course they do the remaster on PS3. So I'm like, oh, wow, perfect time, let's, Buy it so I can really play those games. And Denver kind of did it. Okay. Oh, wait, it's not done. So it gets released on the Vita. I'm like, oh, you know what? I, I don't really play it on the, on the PS3, so let's not buy it. And I think, I think that I kind of forgot those two elements and then bought it again for the PS4. Amazing. So you have three copies of 1010.2 and you've no, never played them. I think I have two. I think I don't have the Vita copy. Oh, okay. Because at the video, co- at the video, I was like, "Come on, I have the PS3 copy. I shouldn't buy the video copy." Um, but that's kind of the story about me and my lack of playing Final Fantasy games. Wow, that was actually a way more entertaining story than I was expecting. <laughs> I knew you would like it. That's why. I'm... Yeah, that's why you kept it close to the vest, so I wasn't yes. going to know by ahead of time. Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Uh, I have more experience, oddly enough, with Final Fantasy spinoffs than numbered Final Fantasy games. Uh, so 15 years ago, my grandma got me Final Fantasy Tactics Advance for my birthday. In fact, she actually gave it to me like a couple weeks early because I begged her to. And I played that game so much. Okay. It is... um, excuse me. I think I've played Final Fantasy Tactics now that I think of it. On PS1 or the advanced version? Uh, I would think it's the advanced version because I think I played it on the DS. Mm. Well, there was also a DS one, but it, uh, I haven't played much of it, but apparently it's not as good, but it's also, that some might people be say the it's DS better. One. So yeah. Yeah, might that might be. be the DS one. If I recall correctly, it was again my ex that landed to me. So. Okay. Yeah, it would make sense that he would be interested in Final Fantasy Tactics too. Um, but yeah, so that game was my like my obsession. It was the, I think the first time I made spreadsheets and databases for a game that I played because I wanted to go into the minute details of how I was building my characters. Uh, and I had like a page where I was keeping track of how much experience I had. I had like this little pocket notebook that I kept all my notes in. Uh, I love that game to death. Um, I know it is not one of the most popular uh, FFT games. Most people say the original FFT is the best one, and I haven't played it yet, although I did receive a copy this week in the mail, uh, so I will visit it eventually. But for now, FFTA is pretty much my jam. Uh, I eventually ended up buying Final Fantasy XII Revenant Wings, which is very, very strange. It is a Final Fantasy XII real-time strategy game on the DS uh, it was an interesting idea, but it wasn't quite there, and it could have used a lot of work. I kind of regretted that purchase. Then I realized I never played a numbered Final Fantasy game, and I needed to remedy this. Uh, so, like, the three that come up when you sort of look at, like, what is the definitive numbered Final Fantasy game, you see a lot of four, you see a lot of six, and you see a lot of seven. Uh, 
And at the time, the easiest to access one and the one that had like the best rated remake was Final Fantasy IV. So I played all of that on the PSP and I did enjoy it quite a bit, but it's kind of the only one that I've sort of played to its entirety. Um, as a music gamer, of course, I've played Theater Rhythm Final Fantasy on 3DS and in the arcade. Uh, one of the interesting things about it, though, is it spoils major po- plot pr- points in the background videos. Uh, <laughs> sometimes characters die in games, and they show the people dying in the background, and yeah, you find out while you're playing a music game. It's Well, I guess this is what happens when you're making a music game about 20-year-old games. You think people have played it all. I did buy a copy of Final Fantasy X-2 on the Vita. Um, in Japan, the games were sold individually as well as in a bundle. Uh, so I have literally like a card sitting right next to me that is the Vita card for Final Fantasy X-2. And I played most of it, and it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But you played X-2. Yes. Uh, I was told that you could dress girls up in that game, and you can. Um, it was not quite as interesting as I thought you could, but I was mostly <laughs> in it for the costumes. Let's be honest. Um, but uh, they're, they're, not surprised. they're not horny costumes, so they're good. After that, at the beginning of the year, I eventually got my copy of Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, so I'm in the middle of a Final Fantasy VIII playthrough. I finished the first disc. There are four discs, so I'm about a quarter of the way through. Um, we might talk about it on the game of the year episode. Maybe, I don't know. It's pretty good. And in general, I tend to prefer RPGs that reward mastery and knowledge about a game's systems with a high level of character build customizability, whether it be through a job system like Final Fantasy Tactics Advance or something like the junction system in Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, I like games that really reward me for having my spreadsheets and my databases, which I know pisses a bunch of people off. Uh, And if you, for some reason, aren't familiar with my my general stance on games, I tend to prioritize mechanics and aesthetic and environment over story content in general, uh, which as I'm finding out this year, maybe is not the greatest fit for RPGs. Uh, but (laughs) once again, to be continued on the game of the year episode. So that's pretty much my personal history with final fantasy. I have a quick update for my story while you were uh, giving your story with uh, final fantasy. And I wanted to confirm if I wasn't sure, but I think, and I, have to, I cannot get up and go see in the living room, but from my purchase history, I have it digitally on the PS4, and I recall I have a box of it. So I'm not sure if it's a box of it on the PS3 or the PS4. I think you bought the PS3 version on sale at some store on I like Boxing Day or something. Yes, that would be typically me. So, And I'm sure it's the same thing. Uh, I was like getting to your history list. Getting to the list of downloads is easier on the PS on the web store PS uh, the PSN web store. But to get to your like to purchase themselves and see like their like your your bill and everything, it's hard. So hopefully this one was also on sale and not on uh, PSN Plus because that will makes for the story even funnier. I don't think it's ever been on PlayStation Plus. So yes, I bought it twice. <laughs> okay, so. Let's talk about exactly what we're going to be covering on this episode. Uh, we are only going to be discussing the Midgar section of Disc 1 of Final Fantasy VII. This is the seven-hour or so long segment that opens the game, and it's uh, pretty much considered to be one of the most beloved segments of an RPG ever. Uh, really? Yes. 
Oh my goodness. Oh wow. This episode is going to be long. <laughs> it's often cited as being the most replayable chunk of FF7 because it's conveniently at the start of the game. It's paced relatively well and it is a nice little self-contained arc with a little bit of everything that people expect from a JRPG. Uh, FF7 fans t- tend to say that it's a nice way to revisit the game if you're short on time because FF7 in its entirety is 38 and a half hours long. Uh, so seven hours, pretty reasonable. Uh, and originally I was hesitating between making us play just Midgar or playing the entire first disc of FF7. Uh, and the deciding factor for that came at E3 this year because it was announced that the episodic Final Fantasy VII remakes first part is going to be a remake of the Midgar section, expanding what is currently about half a CD-ROM to taking up an entire Blu-ray disc, uh, which is mind-bending when you actually think about it. Uh, like how many times the capacity of a CD that represents. Uh, I don't know if there's like dual layer Blu-rays or whatever. Maybe they'll go to that. I don't know. Um, but it's taken a really, really long time for them to get to anything near release. So I guess next year we'll see how well it turned out. But right now it's looking very, very good. And I guess we should get into how we played the game uh, before we get into the game proper. So I played Final Fantasy VII International on my Japanese PS1. This is a special version of Final Fantasy VII that was effectively like a bug patch re-release. Uh, they backported bug fixes and balance tweaks from the US release to the Japanese version of the game. Uh, because there were bugs and stuff that were in the Japanese version of the game. They patched them out for the US release a couple months later, and then they brought it back sort of as a greatest hits later. Um, it also includes a special fourth disc, which is not part of the game per se, but it is an interactive strategy guide, and it has making of videos, which are actually quite interesting to watch when you have the time to do so. Uh, the strategy guide is pretty janky, though you're probably going to want to use regular wiki like a decent human person in 2019. Uh, but it's... I, I'm just amazed by all of the weird second discs that Square includes with their games. Like, there are a bunch of really wacky demo discs with crazy menu systems that I love. Uh, so those are often, like, one of the best parts of unboxing PS1 games for me this year is just playing with the weird bonus disc that Square threw in there. But well, wait, wait a sec. So the bonus disc was assumed that you would, like, run through it through the PS1 or through a PC? No, no, it's for the PS1. It is a strategy guide for Final Fantasy VII that runs on the PS1. It has every map in the game on the disc, so you can, like, highlight items and figure out what they are, or there's, like, it's an interactive strategy guide for the PS1. Okay, but, so, let's say I'm blocked somewhere while playing on the PS1, so I need to find a save point. Yes, save oh i didn't say it was a good idea i'm just saying okay it's, okay it, it's in the box <laughs> right, right but like so you save you turn off your ps1 you change this you yes. turn it on you go in the guide you go look and then you do the same procedure go back to the game and then hopefully move uh forward enough so you don't are you making progress and not like losing progress oh my goodness yeah and it's not so much a a guide like a walkthrough like that tells you what to do because that's not what this does it's more like an encyclopedia for items in the game like if you're looking for a specific kind of materia you can go look it up in like the item encyclopedia and it'll show you all of the item uh, all the places on the map where you can find that item and there are different things like that, like for the enemies and all that stuff. Okay. You're probably still going to want to use a wiki, though it's faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it is. Especially right now. So you played the iOS version of FF7. How was that? Um, 
I played the iOS version. Uh, I feel that especially I played the iOS version on the iPad. I feel that the I, if I recall correctly, yeah, the controls, the touch controls, they're they they cannot move. They have I think three or four layouts that you can switch from one to another. Um, but you cannot like really re like remap them or just like move them on screen. Uh, you can switch from uh, analog stick to uh, digital stick or D pad. Um, and uh, what's and of course there is iOS uh, game controller support. So I still have my um, Ori pad. I forgot what's yep. name. Yeah. Yeah, it's Ori Pad and that's it. I don't think that was a fancy name for the iOS version. So I played mostly through that. Uh, it's been a while since I used it, uh, this pad. But one thing I realized is that um, sometimes I would press A to go through the dialogue or to go through some menu and it would register my pressing A and holding it as two presses. So uh, it was not that bad doing dialogues, but I've seen that mainly through some tutorial portion of the game. Uh, at the beginning, really at the beginning of the game. So it was a bit weird where I was like double tapping. I was like, I'm not double tapping. So I don't know if it was a signal problem in the controller or the way the iOS gamepad support is, but uh, that was a bit weird at some points. Uh, also, since you mentioned that you played the game in Japanese, I uh, played the game in French, which was quite uh, <laughs> interesting, let's put it this way. Uh, so I don't think they have touched the translation since then. So sometimes it kind of feels that it's a translation. It's based on the English translation, which is based on the Japanese. Yeah, I would I would love to know if that was actually the case, because the English translation is like known to have been extremely rushed. I think the guy who translated it had something like two or three weeks to do the entire game, which is kind of ridiculous. And I don't think he had a working build of the game. I think he had like a script and he had to like figure out from just looking at an Excel spreadsheet, like what the lines were supposed to refer to. And I don't think there was that much scripting changed in the game to actually like enhance character limits or anything like that. Um, so it is a very awkward translation. Friend of the show, Tim Rogers has made a series over on Kotaku where he runs through the entire first disc, uh, doing a translation analysis, comparing the Japanese to the English, uh, very in depth. And I, I loved him because he is kind of a big weirdo, kind of like me. Uh, so there is a lot of, very weird sidetracking stuff happening in his videos that I appreciate a lot. And that's why I loved him. But I definitely recommend that if you have ever been curious about like what the hell anything means in the English translation, definitely go check out uh, his series. It's called Let's Mosey over on uh, Kotaku's YouTube channel. So yeah, so at this point, I played the game in French um, and mainly through the uh, game stick. And uh, it was great. I, I think uh, that it was really nice. Especially, I was just like in the weekend out of town, so uh, I played a bit at home, a bit there. So uh, having it on iOS was great, uh, nice. I didn't use. They have a functionality where you can upload your save game to iCloud, and it would synchronize between devices. Uh, I didn't try that functionality. I did upload it, but never really played with the phone. Uh, so I don't know if it's like reliable or not. It's a bit weird because it kind of reminds me of the first few. I think. Yeah, I think the PS3 cloud saves were a bit like that, with where 
you kind of needed yourself unless oh unless you were on PSN plus that's true that you needed to move your save games to the cloud and then when you go to the other PS PS3 or here in this case on your on your other iOS device you need to say oh it's I'm logged into the same iCloud account, but I need to download it from my iCloud account yeah. to the contain the app container. So that part, just that part, to me feels a bit weird. Knowing the fact that the same game that you have, like at, it kind of fakes that you have, like I think four or five. Uh, no, I think it's six cartridges that contains three save point each. It's either six or eight cartridges, or memory stick, and that's like if you can do that, then just like automatically uploaded to iCloud. So that that part I was like <laughs> it's like it's a pain to always remember to do it. But yeah. in the end I always assume that once I wanted to play, I'll have, I'll play on the iPad and when I'm in Twelve Yeah I have to visit family. Usually I don't bring my laptop. I just bring my iPad and my phone. So that was more or less to just bring my uh, game controller. So yeah, if we actually mention names of things that are not quite what they are in the English script, like that's why I played in Japanese, he played in French, so we don't actually know where the English names are for anything. I did try in my notes to go look everything up on a wiki before recording so that I could try to use the good names, but I can't guarantee I got everything. Right. And I think since I use a default name, we discussed a bit, I think the default character name um, are okay. Like more or less, they're the same as the English translation. They should be, yeah. Uh, so let's get into the no spoilers section of the, of the episode. Like, as I'm going to refer to later, like, it's questionable if any of this is actually a spoiler because it is like not even the first entire disc of a three disc game. And to be honest, like not much of real consequence happens during this section. (laughs) So I did got told by friends uh, that there's a big spoiler at the end of disc 2 but it's been a while since they uh, played FF7 so they didn't recall if the Midgar section was including it I confirm with you you did tell me no it's really at the end of the first disc and you did say that the end of the Midgar section is about two thirds of the first disc because you said first disc is about like 10 to 12 hours more or less yeah that's what I thought but then I've seen other things that say there's way more stuff left to do on the first disc so I don't know if it's like I'm looking at a 100% guide and that means there's a bunch of extra stuff that you don't need to do or what right, right, right. Um, but yeah just going by time I think it's about two thirds of the way through the first disc if you are an FF7 person you can write in and tell us about how much stuff is left uh, yeah we on the mostly first base our time estimate uh, on howlongtobe.com yes Uh so I'm gonna go into I th- just before yeah just before I think that's like right now it's a good moment. Uh, if you haven't played the game or you don't want to get spoilers on the like 25 years old game. No right? no no no. The, this is the not spoiler section, so it's fine. Oh okay, that's okay. Then. There will be a spoiler section later. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to give the story synopsis that should have been on the back of the box to try and get people to buy it. Okay, the synopsis you wanted to read. Yes, the one that I like. If I had read this, maybe I would have actually picked up the game and the story. So here we go. I wrote this myself knowing what I know about the story, but it seems to check out. A gang of eco-terrorists wage battle on the Shinra Corporation, a corporate empire exploiting the planet for profit, only to get swept up in an even larger conflict against the genetically engineered super soldier trying th- threatening to destroy the planet. That's the story synopsis I would write for this game. Could you have, you have told me that just before starting the game? Because I think I kind of understood the seven hours I just played now. Yeah, the game isn't very good at explaining this. <laughs> and I think okay. part of it is part of what I said about 
the translation just making it very hard to understand things. It's also just a very complicated story in general. And I feel like uh, when I watched the, Tim's video about the analyzing the translation, I feel like the Japanese translation honestly does the story a better service than the English one. It is much easier to get a grasp about what they're talking about than in the very short, because they had to fit inside character limits, English translation, um, or, or what I've seen of it anyway. So that's generally the story. I don't want to expand too much more about it because we're going to be doing like a point-by-point -point analysis of it in the spoiler section. But if you're like thinking of picking up FF7 and you look at the back of the box and you're just as confused as I was when I looked at the back of that box, like that is the information you need to know to know if this is an RPG that sounds interesting to you or not. Now I'm going to talk about the mechanics a little bit because these are the things that don't really spoil anything and have nothing to do with the story. Um... So this is an FF game that has the active time battle system. It's a system that originated in Final Fantasy IV as a way to make turn-based menu-driven combat have more urgency by playing it out in real time. Um, each character in your party has, or actually even the enemies do, uh, each character has a progress bar representing the time it takes to wind up or cool down from an action. When a battle begins, each Progress bar fills up at a rate proportional to that character's speed stat. When the bar is full, you can queue up an action for that character. Oh, so yeah, once you've queued up that action, the bar is emptied from where it was, and then how much time it takes for the bar to fill back up is dependent on character speed and the power of the ability. And then when that bar is filled, the action occurs, and then the cycle repeats indefinitely. Um, so that's more or less how battles have been working in FF games since like FF4. It's not like a super mind-blowing thing. I do kind of want to know what your opinion on it is since you haven't really played FF games before. True. Um, I, I, to be honest, I was kind of used to a typical turn-by-turn -turn system that has more or less no limit. I guess a good example of that is Pokemon. Yeah. Uh, I think Persona 4 is like that too. There's yes. no time limits. Yes. And even Persona 3 that I played too. Yeah, like all the games you're mentioning don't have like that urgency element to it. True. But it's similar enough. To grasp this mechanic was a bit, not hard, but just a bit like, yeah, kind of, I think hard is a good term. I was like, what the fuck is that? More or less at the <laughs> beginning. And trying to understand, like, even if you explained it, I didn't realize that it was kind of too fill of the bar. I kind of assumed that like, when your bar fills in, you can queue your action and then it just do a round robin in your team. Uh, and then if, if somebody, if, if one of your own, uh, allies or teammates, uh, fill the bar first, then you queue and then it go first, more or less. So I didn't know, I didn't realize there was another progress bar, like fill, the same one, but filling it again so they can attack. And it, it might just queuing. be for magic and summons and limit breaks. Uh, maybe not for physical attacks. I didn't notice that one, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, definitely, like, things can have charge-up times, and that charge-up time is represented by an ATB bar filling up. Also, it stops. That's also something I realized. Sometimes. Yeah, depending on what the enemies do, I realize that it stops. And there are also different I mean... settings in the settings about that. So huh. there's active, recommended, and wait. I don't actually know what the default is. I think it's it probably has to be recommended, just judging by the name. Uh, and it tweaks what parts of the game block the progression of the ATB bars. So I think like the most extreme is active, where the bars never stop. They just keep going, no matter if it's a battle animation or whatever. It just keeps trucking on. I think recommended 
makes it stop during the battle animations. So you get to see the entire animation play out before the bars continue to fill up. And then you have wait, which is if you are actively doing something in a menu, the bars are paused uh, and they will also pause during battle animations. Oh man, I would have liked that setting. But it, I think it, it's not exactly what you think because when you say that, you think like, oh, it's going to be like Pokemon or like any other no, no, no. turn-based no, RPG. At least I would have like maybe realized that it would do that. So I was just like, uh, while I'm thinking, at least play in the menu and have fun. You yeah. Like you can stall things out for minutes that would normally be like 10 seconds if you use wait. Um, but I know that when I used wait in FF4, I was kind of like confused because it did not function at all like how I thought it would it was going to function which is kind of a problem um if you have it on active or recommended uh, enemies can complete extra actions against your characters if you are trying to stall which is why you can pause in battles because like in Pokemon there's no pause button you can't pause a Pokemon battle because there's no point it's turn-based and like if you stall you're just not making anything happen uh when it's there's a pause uh, well, it's the start button on a PlayStation controller. Yeah, I don't know if what it is on mobile or if it's there at yeah, all. Yeah, there was an S1 and S2. So I, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh-oh, that would have been nice now. I don't know. It, you should have checked out the settings window because there's a bunch of really cool shit in there. Um, the settings window has a speed slider for ATB. This only impacts the speed at which the bars fill, not the speed of battle animations. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like if you are bored to death by waiting for the ATB bars to fill, you can go crank that thing up to the maximum. And yeah, you're not going to wait as much for your ATB bars to fill. But unless you're playing on wait, the time you're thinking about your actions in the menu every second counts for more because your enemy's ATV bars are also filling up faster. So it's it's really hard for me when playing ATV games to actually gauge like what is the comfortable speed so that the battles feel like they're going at a reasonable pace but also won't screw me because it's too fast. Um, and I think probably the correct solution is if you're hesitating on this stuff, probably you should just use wait. So yeah, that's the ATV system, which like... Now it's pretty much a mainstay of Final Fantasy games, although the recent ones that feel more 3D don't necessarily use ATB. It was more like, if you're playing a more traditional Final Fantasy game since Super Nintendo PlayStation era, then yeah, probably. PS2 onwards, eh. Yeah, for, I don't think Final Fantasy X has that, though. I don't remember. I don't recall, but I... Yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I, I feel, like I think that... it's an every numbered Final Fantasy since hmm. four, uh, but I'm not I guess, sure. I guess we'll have to see with our listeners. Please send in follow up. Uh, next system we're going to talk about is the materia system. This is the mechanic that is unique to Final Fantasy seven. Uh, the way it works is that weapons and armor have a number of materia slots, and you can equip materia items to these slots to give the character equipping that gear certain abilities and stat buffs and debuffs. Um, you can find materia as items in dungeons, you can purchase them from shops, sometimes they come pre-attached to new characters, all that stuff. Um, what's interesting about materia is they're leveled up independently from your character. Uh, so as you level up the materia itself, uh, the stat buffs and debuffs that it grants can become more significant, or you can gain access to more powerful variants of magic spells. So if you're doing something like, um, I, I don't actually remember what the Final Fantasy, uh, spell names are, um, but let's say, uh, 
if we're going to like the old school names from like Final Fantasy three, if you have Thunder one and you level up your, your materia to level two, congratulations, you also get Thunder two. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you the French translation was like this. It was like for un, for deux, which is fire one and two. Oh, so. wow. I, I yeah, know yeah. that that's how like the old, old Final Fantasy games were. I don't think that's still what the naming convention was in FF seven. I'm pretty sure they changed to like Thundara and all of those weird like suffix based ones. I guess that all went away in translations. Well, I never unlocked the level two, so I never got to read the level two name. Oh no, but you you you, you see, uh, unless like you see that it's locked, but you see its name though. Oh, that's true. Well, I just have no memory of what it said then. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you in the French translation, it was saying more or less fire one and two. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting about the leveling happening directly on the materia item and not on the character itself is that they can be swapped from character to character if one ever becomes unavailable for whatever reason. So occasionally the game is going to prevent you from using a given character for either story reasons or you have to split the team into two or something like that. And if that's the case, uh, you can swap out the materia between your characters, no problem. Although sometimes like they have this awkward pause before a boss or something that is like, please select your materia because we didn't give you the opportunity to actually do this until now, uh, which is yes. very odd. And then if you're like me, you don't say, I don't care. And then go to the bus and realize, oh my God. Sometimes my you ass. really get screwed because of that. And well, yes, I was like, why are you asking? Why are you asking me more or less? And I realized that, oh, it's because most of the attacks my characters do, they're like more or less close combat attacks. And now I don't have long range and I'm fucked, more or less. Yep. So I died. Relatable. Uh, uh, weapons and armors can have linked materia slots, which allow you to pair a pair of materia together. Uh, so a good example of this is if you find the all materia and you have the restore materia, you can pair them together to give uh, your character the ability to cure your entire party uh, or heal your entire party at once. Another example, if you have the elemental materia and the lightning materia, you can pair them together to make your physical weapon deal elemental damage to enemies, uh, which is not something I knew uh, while playing the game. I wish I did. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you could do that. Wow. Uh, I, I knew about all and the other one, but I, I just like, what is elemental? What does this do? I don't know. Just don't use it. It doesn't do anything. Um, yeah, dumb me. Yes. Yes, yes, I saw some of those. I was like, oh, I'll just put them. Who cares? Mm -hmm. uh, and last system before we move into the spoiler section is limit break system. So this is an evolution of Final Fantasy VI's desperation attack mechanic, um, but it is the first use of the term limit break. Um, it has appeared in every subsequent numbered Final Fantasy game, although the actual implementation details tend to vary from game to game. So next to the ATB bar is a limit break bar, and that progress bar fills up a little bit bit each turn but it fills up faster if you take damage and this can be interesting sometimes with some risk reward play where sometimes you can attack into a monster and attacking into that monster will cause a heavy counter attack that will deal a ton of damage to you but it also builds up your limit break gauge very quickly so then you might actually find that to be worth it and then deal out even more damage to the enemy than what they dealt to you uh, when the bar is filled, your physical attack action is replaced with a limit break action, which unleashes one of multiple possible desperation attacks, which are very powerful moves. 
it's kind of awkward because sometimes you wish you could hold on to the limit break until later, but if you want to physical attack, you don't have a choice but to use the limit break thing because your action is completely replaced, uh, which can be strange. Um, and you can have up to six different limit breaks by, uh, you can unlock, sorry, up to six different limit breaks by defeating enemies and performing lim limit breaks. And once you have all of those six, you can find items around the world that can unlock a seventh one that is the big one uh, that you're probably going to be looking for. So that is my brief mechanical analysis of the game. It's good. I learned something. It's pretty straightforward. I think we both learned something <laughs> researching these uh, these mechanics. Um, so before we enter spoiler territory, nothing we we will discuss in this episode, as I mentioned earlier, is that big a spoiler relative to the rest of the game. The Midgar section is a pretty self-contained story arc that really just sets up the context for the rest of the story in FF7. As far as I know, Likadivya has not played beyond the Midgar section at all. I did not. I was considering maybe play it, but I was like, you know what? Let's do the episode first, and then um, I can revisit that And after. we'll discuss whether or not that's a good idea later on in the episode in the spoiler section. Um, I watched all of Tim's video series, so I know everything that happens in disc one. However, I will not mention specifics of what happens for the rest of the disc. I know absolutely nothing about what happens beyond disc one, so please don't spoil it in follow up. Um, I'm, yeah, that's all I'm going to say for now. So yeah, and I've stopped playing at the end of the Midgar section. So please, 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 no spoilers. Yep. So uh, we're going to play a little time, and then when we come back, we're going to be in the spoiler section, and I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Okay, so I think we're back. We're back. So I finished this game, I think, like three weeks ago. So I had to go refresh my memory by what by reading a guide uh, while I was doing these notes because there are some parts of the game that were very fuzzy in my memory. Like I, I think I started playing like a month and a half ago. So the early parts of the Which game was went, a. I think it was a bad idea. I think I liked my strategy of like starting last week, more or less. Yeah, probably, but. Um, <laughs> I, I did take notes throughout the game, so I had a lot of, like, disparate, like, I had, like, 15 to 20 points that I needed to jam in there, but I was missing, like, what goes in between these things. Uh, so, uh, so we start off getting off a train, Cloud sort of joins this um, faction called Avalanche, and they're going to go blow up a Mako reactor whatever the fuck that is. Um, like a lot of things in Final Fantasy, you sort of have to improvise or guess what things are um i guess to a certain extent you can sort of equate it to like nuclear power except probably not nuclear because i think if you blow up a nuclear reactor like you actually kill all the humans on earth or something like that but like yeah we we, we add turnable for that yeah some form of like nuclear ish yeah, like, yeah power. like like a cold burning but I, I, natural gas yeah it's definitely some sort of national re uh, natural resource it's probably not clean energy, though. Like, just <laughs> judging by how things are going, doubt it. Um, and one of the things that I found pretty interesting about um, this opening s section is that it's very action-packed compared to a lot of other RPGs. Um, like, the big other uh, RPG series in Japan is Dragon Quest. And, I, I mean, I haven't played a lot of Dragon Quest games, but it feels like... 
one of the memes in like RPGs is you get woken up by your mom at the start of every RPG. Um, and it's not just like Dragon Quest. I think a few of them do that. Um, but it's also I think like that's how Pokemon starts. Like you, almost you, every Pokemon starts like that. I think yeah. it might be all of them. Uh, it, it's just like this trope that is so boring. And to have an RPG that starts with just like action is very strange. Um, it, it's still like a, a tutorial action, but it's still like action, which is very rare. Um, so yeah, you, you and your pals from Avalanche, you get inside the reactor and you go blow it up. But I think at that moment, it's kind of semi-clear though that they're not your pals. No, they're, they're new people you become acquainted with because they hire right. you as Yes, they're more or less, you're here for the money, more or less. Yes. We don't know why you left the army. I guess we'll know later. Uh, but you're there, they're kind of like, don't trust you, but one of the guy, I guess the guy that are you trusts you a lot. That's why you're there. But uh, there's some kind of like comments made about like, hey, dude, are you trying to kind of like fuck us over and stuff like that? So uh, at least it sets the tone. Uh, I agree with that. Um, I was quite surprised by the action packedness of even the whole section itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we can talk to, uh, about that uh, a bit even more, but. Uh, like I really kind of felt like there was this was not an RPG. It mm. was an RPG because the way you like you the, the combat mechanics are, but this action packedness didn't felt like an RPG. It felt to me more like an action adventure game. Yeah, or like there are first person shooters that open like in the heat of the action in like a war scene or something and you literally just sort of resume that scene from where you were and this maybe not quite as high octane as like literally being in the middle of a battle and war but it's definitely a lot more action-packed than literally 95 percent of the rpgs i've played um which is kind of unsettling and i think the level reminded me a bit of uncharted you never drop in the like an eat but it's always like you do three moves and then boom it blows up or something happens Mm. or like you stole something you shouldn't have stolen. So it kind of remind me, reminded me of Uncharted, the way the action was quite intense at the beginning of a game. That's interesting. I wouldn't have considered that comparison, but yeah, I, I do see how that could make sense. So th- there's a first boss at the Mako Reactor, which is the Guard Scorpion. It's kind of a forgettable boss, but I guess that makes sense because it's a tutorial boss. <laughs> so it's like, don't be too excited. Um, but then after that, we have like the first timed section in the game, which I don't know if Final Fantasy VI had timed sections. I know that Final Fantasy VIII has timed sections. So I think it's like a PlayStation thing where they were like, we need to add urgency to something that is happening in this RPG where you can stall as long as you want. So we're going to put a timer in the corner of the screen and just blow shit up if you, <laughs> if you run out of time. And, Amazingly, I died in the first section of the game, which is not what I expected would happen. Uh, luckily, there's a save point before you, I, right before you actually try to escape the thing. So you set up the bomb and then you have to leave the place. Um, and I did die on the first boss. You die on the timer section. I died on the first boss because I like, like, remember when I was talking about the smashing of the button and it acted to like it was doing double presses? Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw a quick, like, kind of 
dialogue saying, "Oh, something, something about scorpion." I'm like, "Sure, that's a scorpion." What do you? And then I can't. I didn't realize that it's because of it of the scorpion's tail. When it's up, it will uh, it will counterattack when you attack. So you need to wait and wait and wait and wait until it goes down, and then then you can attack again. I'm yeah. Like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So I lied there because of that. <laughs> so you you died because the tutorial fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's the iOS game that it, the iOS port is that's a bit problematic or the controller because I was using the controller at that point. I don't think that text is skippable on the PS1 version. I don't remember. Um... So yeah, I died during the time bomb section because there is a section when you are walking on like this thin walkway thing where one of your friends needs to be rescued. And I did not realize I had to rescue them because they looked exactly the same as when they didn't need to be rescued. (laughs) So I didn't talk to them. And I was like, what the fuck am I missing? Is there like a clickable item somewhere that I'm not? So I like tried to press circle on every pixel of like the security room or whatever, where you had to go through that I was stuck in. And I just ran out of time. So I, I died in the time bomb section. And then the next thing I did, actually, I realized like 15 seconds before the timer ended, like, oh, shit, there's someone I didn't talk to. Maybe I should go try to talk to them. But there was no point. So I just turned off the PS1, rebooted the game, and did it from there. And I, I did it. Rule number one of RPG. Every time I play RPG, you need to fucking talk to everybody. Yeah, but sometimes No. But I guess I know, but I, yeah. it saved my ass in the rare few RPGs I played. You need to talk to everybody. Yeah. Um. So you escape to Sector Seven on a train, um, and the actual train itself is not particularly relevant yet. But once you arrive in Sector Seven, the Avalanche members hold a meeting in a bar, which is called Seventh Heaven, where your friend Tifa works. And we get a little bit more of character development with uh, Cloud with some dialogue that makes him out to be somewhat of a cold character. So that that character development happens there. That's also where we realize that him and Tifa like kind of like like childhood friends. They have a thing going on, kind of and kind of not. They, they kind like of love most each anime. other. Yes, yes, it's kind of. They like and love each other, but they don't want to tell each other because they assume the other doesn't like them. So or they. Not at the same level as they are, so it's typical, yeah. Typical anime stuff. Yeah, the usual anime bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I say this lovingly as an anime fan. Yes, I know. There is a building in Sector 7 called the Beginner's Tower. Did you go to this building? Yes, that's also where I ran into those issues where I was like, okay, yes, go, yes, okay, I get that, I get that. And then it's like, oh, but then I didn't miss this this instruction, so yeah. So I think I missed half of the instruction there. Interesting. So I did not go to the beginner's tower, and I realized later that this was a terrible mistake when I was trying out the interactive strategy guide because it turns out there's an old materia there, and all is a very useful ability. It lets you apply another materia ability to an entire side of a battle uh, to either all your allies or all your opponents. So it can be very useful for clearing out uh, lots of random battles quickly or healing your entire team at once or applying buffs on all your team at once, although there aren't really any buffs in the Midgar section you can unlock, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, And it reminded me of something I dislike about FF games uh, and how spoiled I am coming from like a Pokemon background. In Pokemon, at almost any point in the game, you can backtrack to 
any previous area to pick up any item you could have missed or forgotten about. I think the only exception to this is like in the first Pokemon games, the SSN, when the ship leaves the harbor, like if there were any items in that ship that you forgot about, they're gone. Too late. Yeah, too late. But in FF games, it seems, it seems to be way more frequent that you're locked into a given area with very little flexibility on where you can go, especially early on in the game. And you sort of become obsessed with getting everything. And it's sort of what you mentioned with talking to every character. It promotes a sort of completionist hoarding behavior that I'm not really fond of in games. And this is foreshadowing. If something bad happens to that place, there might be items that are just permanently gone and you're fucked. And I'm never going to see that all materia ever again. There are others in the games, but surprise, surprise, I missed the second one. And the third one, luckily, you cannot miss it. It is forced. The game gives it to you because otherwise you're not going to have all for the rest of the game. And that is the only one I have in my save right now. So that kind of sucks. Oh, okay. That's bad. But I don't think I got it. Where is it located in the the training tower? Uh, I don't remember the exact location where it is, but it, you can get it inside there. Okay. Then once you, you've, you're you done with all your business in Sector 7, you get back on the train because you're going to go see the Mako Reactor Number 5, or how I like to say it, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mako Number 5. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've been waiting all day to say that one. Bum, 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 bum. Okay. I love you, Lou Bega. Once you get back on the train, there is a security lockdown, and uh, it's a little really shitty time section where you have to run across the entire train car in under 15 seconds. Not particularly hard. I'm not sure what the point of this was. Um, what I find kind of strange is that uh, after FF7 in FF8, there is also another like train security-related gimmick on Disc 1 where you need to avoid guards on a train and stuff. And I don't know if this is a thing of 3D Final Fantasy games where they all have a bit that takes place on a train, but like I, I noticed a lot of parallels between Disc 1 of FF7 and Disc 1 of FF8, and I can't tell if this is just like something that they've done in every FF since 7 because it worked in 7, so why not emulate that? Or if it's just like, since FF8 is immediately following up on FF7, they took inspiration from what worked in FF7 and put it in 8. But this isn't the FF8 podcast. Um, but I, I just wanted to point out that there are parallels between the two. Yeah, that was pretty useless. I was like, why do I need to run? There's nothing urgent. And then you arrive at the end of the train or at the end, I don't know if it's the end of the queued train, and then you're like, okay, for no reason. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you jump off into an underground tunnel that uh, leads to the reactor number five. I don't know if this is just like creative ways of saving on unique assets in the game, but it's literally they repainted the the number one reactor <laughs> with yes. different colors. I think they literally used the same textures. They just shifted the color palette and they stamped a different kanji for the number five on the wall. I'm pretty sure that's literally all they did. There is one room that is different, and that is the security room, because there is a different puzzle, and it is a different puzzle that fucks with you if you are playing on a modern display. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So in the security room, uh, you have to press the button at the same time as the two other characters in your party. Oh, yeah. That was super hard. And the window for timing is incredibly tight. And when you're playing through a video scaler that converts things at not exactly zero lag, you will swear for a long time while you try to press the button at the same time as your friends do. Um, 
I think if you are like me and come from a music game background, like thinking of it as a rhythm game is probably a better idea, but it's not ideal definitely for newer displays. I think definitely if you're playing on an HD console like the PS4 or if you're playing directly on device like on the iPhone, like you're probably not going to feel it as much. But I think I spent 15... Oh, that was bad. I spent like 15 minutes trying to do that stupid thing. Okay, maybe not 15 minutes, but I spent at least five or six minutes trying to just like smash... Oh, crap, I missed it then. Yeah. So you do pretty much the same thing as you do in reactor number one. You try to blow it up. Um, However, in this case, a bus saunters in... It is the Airbuster boss. Um, this boss is unique in the Midgar section because it splits the party across both sides of the boss, which means you have, I think, two characters on one side and one on the other. And what that means is you can bait it into attacking one side of, well, one of its sides, and it'll have its back exposed. And you can use that to your advantage with limit breaks to make do a bunch of damage. Um, I didn't notice this strategy but yeah i guess it works uh you can also just like wail on it like any other boss and not have to do that and it'll work fine yeah i feel that um it is a i right now we have a common theme when we go to bosses uh which is there's a strategy and you and i didn't know about it so we didn't follow it so and just like power through the bosses and it worked but i think what's notable is like at least for the bosses we've talked to now aside from like the counter-attack thing that can probably take you out in a pretty quickly at the start of the game like it doesn't matter if you don't know the strategy you can still just kill it by brute force and what's interesting about well actually a lot of enemies in this opening section is that anything that is mechanical in nature is weak to lightning and you have the lightning materia from the start of the game so if you just use lightning over and over again like you will have zero difficulty uh, aside from the things that are strong against lightning which are coming up but they're generally if something is made of metal you can probably kill it with lightning <laughs> yeah a lot of stuff were uh, like weak yeah against lightning that was nice to know i figured it out so i don't remember the exact details of what happens in, like the cutscene following the boss but i i think like a bridge breaks and cloud has to jump off or something the, no, it's because the boss explodes. Then yes. the, it makes the the bridge explodes, and then you're since you're stuck on your side, it kind of like you nearly fall more or less. So that's why you're suspended by this section of the bridge. But don't you eventually drop off and crash into the section five, a uh, sector five church? Right, because you're kind of hanging to the side of the bridge that fall fell off. More or right, or right, right, right. Okay, so that... because because of the explosion, you nearly fell off. And um, and uh, then you're like, hang it. And then it's like, they're trying to help you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then you fell. Okay. So that makes sense. So you crash into the Sector 5 church where you meet Eris again. Uh, we did not mention earlier that um, during the escape sequence for the first reactor, uh, you meet Eris, which is kind of a notable thing because she's very important to the game. Uh, she's selling flowers in the earlier part of the game. Did you buy flowers? Did I buy flowers? I don't know. It's been a month and a half, dude. Okay. I did buy I think I was a jerk and I said no. Uh, I did buy flowers. Mm. Because it's uh, related when you see uh, Tifa and then the guy, the big buff guy's kid. Barrett. Yeah, Barrett. Yes, that's true. And uh, you have an option to either offer it to Tifa or... uh, I forgot the name of the kid. Mad... Mud... I had to start with that. Marlene? Marlene, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I decided to offer it to the girl, and she was all, all happy and shy. So that was funny. Nice. 
so yeah, you have some dialogue with Eris, and she she recognizes you from when you met earlier in the game, and they're being all super cute and stuff. And then the Turks show up. Who are the Turks? A question for the ages. <laughs> they're mean guys that are working for the government. That's what I assumed, well, and slash understood ish. I don't want to say anything because I don't know what is or isn't revealed, but okay. you find out later on disc one. Uh, I guess. And they try to capture Eris. Actually, you can deduce it pretty quickly. I don't, so it's not really a spoiler. Uh, the Turks work for Shinra because when they capture Eris later in the game, they take her to Shinra. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah true, true. But it, I mean, it is more formally established later in the game, but whatever. Uh, so yeah, they, they show up, they try to capture Eris, then you try to run out of the church through climbing up the church um, because they have the front door covered. And there is this weird barrel puzzle. Oh, I didn't know send that puzzle. Okay, so I'm not alone. I'm not the only crazy person who was like, this puzzle makes no sense. And then by the time I figured it kind of out, it was too late. Um, basically, you can push these barrels down to block the path of the Turks that are trying to get to Eris. And if you do it perfectly, you do not have to fight any of them. Oh, okay. That, that I didn't do perfectly. So I the did that to fight. The thing is, like, there are things that the barrel can slide off of and all of that stuff that make the optimal path not necessarily obvious for someone who is doing it for the first time. And I think I got one by accident and all of the other ones I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to drop this barrel because maybe it'll work. And it didn't. Um, so that was kind of weird. After running out from the church, uh, you go towards the Sector 7 gate-ish thing. And there's like this weird maze thing that's not really a maze. It's just really the path between two sectors, except there's a lot of rubble that blocks your way. And this is where you encounter my favorite weird random enemies in the entire game. Well, so far, the Hell Houses. Which oh, are yes. just big enemies that are houses. Um, I heard through various podcasts and interviews that this is like, we're trying to come up with ideas for enemy types that make sense in an urban environment. And we weren't sure what to do. So why the fuck not? Let's make a house. <laughs> and okay, it checks out. It's a house. It has missiles and shit. It's really funny. It's weird as hell, though. Um, yeah, I didn't understand the house. But <laughs> it was attacking me, so I defended myself. More of course, when a house shows up and attacks you, you defend yourself. Yes. Oh, yes. Especially one with missiles. Um, True. As you get towards the Sector 7 gate, you encounter this chocobo cart, and Tifa is on it, which is strange, because she should be in Sector 7, and it's heading into the wall market. So naturally, you do what all good friends do when they see their friend maybe being taken away on a chocobo cart. You follow her in to the wall market. And very quickly, it becomes obvious to you that Tifa is going to Don Corneo's honeybee manor. And she is a candidate for being his, quote, bride for the night. Which, yeah. Yeah. that Oh, yes. And it's like, why is she going there? And now you have to figure out why she's going there. Yeah, you have to figure it out. It's also just kind of weird and creepy. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. I'm I'm thinking forward to how FF7 Remake is going to have to deal with this and something else that is coming up. Um, 
so you go to the honeybee manor or actually i think it's just like the the guy's mansion not necessarily the honeybee manor um and the guy at the entrance won't let you in unless you're a girl so eris genius of course proposes you cross-dress to get into the building because of course that is what you do and this is where the game presents a scavenger hunt of sorts for you to find items to pass as female so you don't have to find all of them i think like three of them are required and three are optional uh, there's the dress, the wig, the cologne, the tiara, the underwear, and the makeup. And what? Whoa, what? Yeah, there are six items total. You don't have to get all of them. I think you only get need to get two: the dress and the the wig. And that's I it. think you need three. Okay, then I don't know what, how I get the third one. Okay, uh, but for, <laughs> so I guess we'll yeah, I guess we'll go through all six. <laughs> well, I I don't have notes on like where you get all of these because i don't think it's necessarily important to talk about where you get all of these unless you have any particular anecdotes you want to bring up um but one of the things that's interesting about the scavenger hunt is each of these items has multiple quality levels and depending on the quality levels you obtain you get different stuff to happen when you actually do get into the honey bee manor oh interesting yes. uh so did you have any specific anecdotes you wanted to bring up or no, not really. I was just surprised because the way I remember it, I only got the the dress and the wig. Because the, you go to the the clothes store and then you talk to the owner and then you need to go find the owner at the bar because the the kid, not the kid, but maybe the young man, I uh, says, oh, it's my dad that makes the dresses. So go see him. He's at the bar drinking. So you go see him and he come back and he's like, oh, it's one of those people that want to cross dress. I'm like, oh my fucking God, those comments. So I was a bit of like, okay, I know it's a Japanese game and it's a Japanese game from the 90s, but please, can we go through that section? I do think it is treated a lot better in the Japanese version of the script than it is from what I saw in the English translation of the script for what it's worth. So it's not yeah, necessarily because... to blame on Japan. Okay, so yeah, maybe the translation and yeah, again, that may be a good signal of the French translation based on the English translation because it was like literally like, Oh, you're one of those people that that needs a dress, and there are men. I'm like, <sighs> and uh, that's like the other thing that I'm very worried about for FF7 remake. Although Square has publicly said, like, we are definitely going to be rethinking how we do the cross dressing thing uh, for the reality of today, where um, that probably wouldn't pass as is. Um, so yeah, unless you're dragon, dragon always nice. Sure. Uh, in Cornelius. No, but I'm, okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm saying that it could be that you need to go and get in as a drag queen in the building because the guy loves drag queens. Okay. I don't like your silence again. Wait, what? Is that? <laughs> no, but is, do they say that in the English text? No, no. I'm just, I'm just trying to find, uh, like a funnier and a lighter way of modernizing this section. I, I don't just think drag that's, queens. I love drag queens. So I don't think that's quote, any better in terms of being <laughs> okay, less problematic. <laughs> Um, maybe not. Maybe you need to then you do a new, the new, uh, you need to do a sketch show or you need to do like lip sync and no. Okay, never mind. I don't know. Okay, uh, let's move forward uh, because I we'll see. I feel that I'm digging myself in a big yes. hole right now. I think so too. Uh, so in Corneo's mansion, you find out that there are three candidates for the Honeybee Manor, and coincidentally, your party has three girls in it. Well, two girls in Cloud. Um, so this is where the quality of the items you got during the scavenger hunt uh is important because it dip, it gives you a different choice of who gets chosen. So it doesn't actually matter who gets chosen if it's not cloud because the scene is effectively the same it's just the models are swapped. 
if Cloud isn't chosen, he ends up like in another room far away from Don Corneo and he's sleeping or whatever. And then there are a bunch of drooling men who try to attack you uh, and take your dress off or something. Yeah, well, that's not the way I understood it. It's like, well, I, I didn't get show? that scene, so I can't tell you. <laughs> I don't know. That's how I understood oh, you, it. But Oh, you didn't get that scene? No, I got the cloud is chosen scene because I'm uh, a master who only got the top quality items. Then I am not a master that got the top quality item. And what happened more or less is since the boss didn't talk, take you, he's like, hey, my minions, here's the lady you have for tonight, more or less. Oh, okay. So that's why the guys attack you. So you need to defend yourself and then they realize that you're cloud. Is it a battle or is it just a scene? I think it is a battle. Interesting. Um, so if cloud is chosen, you get a shorter scene actually where uh, Don Corneo tries to have sex with you in his bedroom. Which is not awkward at all. <laughs> um, and of course, Eris and Tifa being the good friends they are, they bust through the door and save you. Uh, they intim- You together as a party intimidate Corneo and he reveals that Shinra is planning to destroy Sector 7. Um, because Shinra found out that Avalanche members come from Sector 7. Throughout his explanation, he stalls long enough to deploy a trap, which sends all of our heroes into the sewers. Which is interesting, again, because FF8 also has a sewer section in Disc 1, which is kind of like this. Um, but what makes this different from the one in FF8 is there is a boss when you fall down in there. The completely unremarkable Apps, which is a terrible name for a boss. All I remember from him is he can poison you. Ooh. I mean, it makes sense. You're in the sewers. But it's, yeah. like, not particularly exciting boss. Again. Yeah. I, continuing the trend of kind of not particularly interesting bosses in the midyard section i think like the sewers are maybe one and a half screens of to navigate yeah, it's, which it's is quite easy to go out of them yeah it's not like ff8 sewers where you need like a, to fold out like this entire huge map of the sewers and it's terrible uh because everything looks the same but uh luckily you don't have that in this game uh so you exit the sewers and you wind up in the train graveyard and this is not necessarily the easiest place to navigate. Uh, in fact, I, it took me like 10 minutes to realize that there was a puzzle there. I thought once again, like I was being stupid and not finding the pixel I had to walk on. And I think this is a great place to take a short break and talk about how FF7's graphics work outside of combat. They don't work. That's the answer. <laughs> wow. Hot takes. Yes, hot takes for real. So... There's a scrolling background layer that consists of a pre-rendered background at a fixed camera angle. And for large set pieces, which there are only a few in uh, the Midgar section, occasionally they make use of multiple background layers to allow for parallax scrolling. You see this a little bit later when you're climbing the Sector 7 wall. The characters appear atop the pre-rendered background as very low-polygon 3D models that are rendered in real time. Uh, They look really stupid, the low-polygon 3D models that move on the map. Um, some people think they're cute. I think they're disgusting, but whatever. They're not great. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and you have like the, the iOS version. They're worse on PlayStation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is weird though, because it seems that the iPad version is more or less the scale up version for the phone. I run the game a bit on the phone and it look better. Huh? Yeah. Which was a bit strange. Yeah. 
but one of the things to note about the pre-rendered backgrounds in this game is that you have to forget, you can't forget that this is mid to late 90s pre-rendered 3D. So everything looks like it was made with a version of Bryce that came with the original <laughs> iMac. It looks disgusting. Textures look bad. So it's very difficult to perceive what material something is supposed to be. Depth is incredibly difficult to perceive. So sometimes oh, yes. something... Oh, yes. You know, like you think you should be able to walk in a given direction, but there's like an imperceptible elevation change and you don't fucking know where to go. Uh, and uh, specific to the train graveyard, sometimes they use some, quote, clever tricks to cheat the limitations of how these graphics work. Um, but they feel so bizarre when played in the modern day that it can be incredibly frustrating once you actually figure out what the intended effect was supposed to be. Uh, in the train yard, they, their clever trick that I despise is they have holes in the top of the train so you can see through them instead of like making the top of the train transparent while you walk into them like every other good PlayStation RPG that came out in those years. I don't know. It was really weird. I guess it was too much trouble to like bake the tops of the trains on separate layers or something what's interesting and this you probably didn't discover this on your own because you mentioned that you didn't really press the s1 s2 buttons but on the original playstation release there's a feature where if you press the select button all of the screen exits and all of the ladders are highlighted on screen with a little arrow no i figured it out a bit later in the game oh cool um, so you can more easily like figure out how to navigate across the map. However, this is unfortunately not the case for all interactable objects, which is frustrating because sometimes the thing you are looking for is not a ladder or a screen exit is just what the fuck am I supposed to do now? Yeah. If you can, if you can navigate with it without jumping, uh, like a ladder or a screen exit, it doesn't show as far as I recall. What also kind of sucks is, like, this is the pattern that is followed for all PlayStation Final Fantasy games, like the pre-rendered background and all that stuff. They only put this feature in 7, which means when you go to 8, you don't have this anymore, and you have to figure out what the interactable objects are yourself. And I spent 20 minutes in a dungeon once trying to find where I had to press circle, and it was not fun. Uh, so they should have kept this the whole time. Um, and in general, there are a lot of things in... FF7 that are kind of conservative in a way to prevent culture shock from people who are coming from like the Super Nintendo FF6. Um, like the weight option for ATB is one of these options. There is a fixed camera angle option for the battles. So you can have it look like battles looked in old Final Fantasy if you find the camera moves too jarring or whatever. That's true. They were quite jarring, the Karamaru's adding uh, combat scenes. Yeah, and it doesn't help that like all of the combat runs at 15 FPS. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. That, like Sometimes they really manage to nail it and it doesn't look bad, but sometimes you're just like, what the fuck am I even looking at? Um, and I think like the select button thing where it highlights the stuff is another kind of move in that direction of trying to adapt the game so that it's welcoming to people who are coming from a mostly 2D thing. Oh, and while we're talking about this, like playing this game with a D-pad is infuriating uh, because sometimes you think you're going one direction, but the game thinks you're going in another direction and it's confusing as hell. Or yeah, you, because of the camera angles, you mean, here? I ran into that. Sometimes you're like on the border of a wall and you just like walk up to the wall and it just like pushes you in a direction or something. It's like weird early 3D game stuff. Um, although I guess technically this game is not a 3D game. It is a 2D game with pre-rendered 3D backgrounds. Um, and right. the, the, the back of the box is kind of contradicting that though, saying like, look at all these great 3D graphics. 
the main issue I ran into is because of the camera angle and the fake 3D is that you let's say you exit one area of the map and then you enter the other one and you say, oh, I need to go left again. But nope, nope, nope. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. to go up, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a bit uh, infuriating. I also had issues navigating with the joystick when I was running. So I end up using the D-pad a lot in the end. Oh, wow. I played yeah, yeah. on uh, the original PlayStation controller before the DualShock that doesn't have analog sticks. Yeah. So I pretty much just had to use the D-pad the whole time. Mm. So once you finish the train graveyard puzzle, which is not particularly interesting, uh, you wind back up at the Sector 7 train station from the start of the game. Um, and of course, if you may remember the earlier section when we talked about Sector 7, this immediately made me run towards the beginner's tower because by this point I knew that there was an all material I could go find. Um, but unfortunately, the game prevents you from going back there because the situation happening right now is too urgent. Oh We're... crap! Yep. So that all material is just gone forever. Rip. Um, but it is true that the situation is a bit too urgent um, because the Turks are making their way up the Sector Seven pillar and they are trying to blow up uh the pillar so that the sector seven plate comes crashing down on what is under it which is everyone in sector seven um so yeah there i i I kind of understand the game doesn't let you go back it just kind of sucks um so it's very linear uh you just go up the stairs and fight random mobs up until you make it up to barrett um then there's one of those like fancy awkward pauses which is like haha maybe you should think about equipping some materia <laughs> yeah that at, at least it's not that one that they said skip yeah and then reno which is one of the turks and the boss uh shows up to set the bomb off on the pillar to crush sector seven so what makes reno different than a lot of other bosses before it is he is strong against lightning which has not been the case uh he also has a pyramid attack which is kind of a weird move i did not see this coming at all but i guess it's kind of maybe his unique mechanic i don't know i don't think this is a thing in other ff games at least not the ones i've played um but what pyramid does is it encloses your characters in a pyramid um that pyramid becomes a targetable object in combat and you have to physically attack the pyramid as quickly as possible so that you can get your characters out of the pyramid if not uh, you die yes as soon as all three of your characters are in a pyramid you get a game over screen yes which i add same here um this is where the atb speed slider can really fuck with you because if you have the speed too fast you might get your characters stuck in pyramids before they actually have the chance to attack the other pyramid uh which kind of sucks but otherwise, like once you figure that out, pretty straightforward boss, you just deal a bunch of damage and he's dead. Um, well, he's not dead. No, because he, ex- he escapes. Yes. One of the Turks captures Eris from Sector 7 uh, while you are doing this. Uh, Eris went off to go help Marlene get to safety, and presumably she does. Uh, we don't know at this point yet. And um, the plate comes crashing down and barrett loses his shit because everyone he was working to save is gone so what is the point in doing anything anymore big tantrum but whatever uh the the story must go on yeah you know what this reminds me that with the french dialogues sometimes i kind of not i was reading the text 
and it was hard for the text to convey what the characters were feeling. It was yeah. a, kind of a bit monotone, more or less. Yeah. It's like, oh no, everybody is dead. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Really? <laughs> Laugh track dot wave. Yeah, yes, exactly. That was a bit strange. Like you read it and it's like, like they're not talking, but the way the the, the way the sentences are constructed kind of felt monotone and not. And it was hard for me to then kind of click and understand the situation or the storyline, to be honest. Yeah, I think the Japanese... First of all, Japanese Barrett is, like, a really good character. Um, you could say that English Barrett was kind of written in a... I, it's hard to say, like, very stereotypical way. Not necessarily racist, but definitely stereotypical. They basically watched Mr. T, and they said, this character needs to be Mr. T. Uh, and that gives a lot of his tone in the U.S. version, whereas... Japanese Barrett is much less a caricature of a black man and is much like this really cool badass guy who also cares a lot about his family and his friends. And the translation really doesn't give the same impression. And this is like one of the things I'm also interested in for Final Fantasy VII Remake is like, are they going to have like different emoting in the Japanese and the English version because their tones are so different? Like, are they going to keep the tonal difference to keep the nostalgia of the old games that these games are working so hard to preserve or are they going to like make one of the two barrett's canonical as being the one that is in final fantasy 7 remake like i don't know the answer to this i don't think enough of barrett has been shown in trailers for me to actually be able to know that but i'm definitely looking forward to finding out so basically like at this point you're like shinra killed all of our friends fuck shinra we're gonna go kill their asses but how do you get to shinra well apparently there's something you can do in wall market to get to shinra uh, this is sort of the part of the game where i was like okay and they get this information from where exactly <laughs> like barrett knows that there is something you can do to get to shinra from wall market but like apparently wasn't relevant enough earlier in the story for us to know or whatever at wall market though you stop along eris's house which you forgot to mention, but that's the second time you do. Yeah. You talk about it then the first time after you meet the uh, era. Yep. And there you meet Eris's adoptive mom, which is called Elmira. Uh, she reveals that Eris is the last living Cetra, which is an ancient race with magical powers, and that Shinra has basically been trying to capture her for her entire life uh, to try and exploit her powers. Also happening at Eris's place is Barrett is reunited with his daughter Marlene. So big party, well, okay, not big party, but like big reunion, uh, which is good because he thought she was dead, which is always a good thing when you find out your daughter isn't dead. Anyway, things get resolved there. Elmira is basically like, don't worry, I'm going to take care of your daughter. You can just like go off and be adventurers because that is what you do in a JRPG. But she's like, come back, you know, come back alive. Yes. She She's kind of uh, insisting that you should be kind of do your thing, but be careful. Yes. Uh, so you go to Wall Market, and this is where you realize like what the big weird spray painted wall that was in the corner of Wall Market is for. Uh, it's a basically there is the sector wall, and there is this cord or pipe or I don't know what. I think it's like an electrical cord or something that is yeah, a mix of everything dangling in the air, uh, and you can climb 
up it and this is where you see the big like parallax reveal of like the world beyond the walls of uh of midgar and this is sort of a weird like navigational puzzle section where um you just need to navigate this kind of not quite maze-like but like beginner maze-like environment to get to the top of the thing uh, there are yellow sockets in this map where you need to plug in batteries. Um, you have to sort of figure out that these batteries can be purchased in the wall market from the repairman inside the shop instead of talking to the shopkeeper, uh, which like if you're like me and you try to only talk to people whose dialogue is required in video games, you will probably miss him and spend 20 minutes turning around in circles trying to figure out what the fuck you're going to do. Um, Somebody told me that I had to buy batteries before going up. I forgot who, but I guess somewhere in the market, somebody said, hey, you should go see that person in the store. They will sell you batteries. And you need batteries to go to uh, Shinra headquarters. It's that straightforward? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I did not notice anything that explicit about it. I sort of figured it out eventually, but it wasn't that straightforward. Like, I know it was like, you need batteries. Like, not going to tell you where the fuck to find them, but you need batteries. Um, I recall somebody tells you, go to the shop and you'll find them. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll have to revisit that. But anyway, I didn't find them. So uh, I eventually found it. A- anyway, so you get to the Shinra building. And it's at this point you are given the choice between climbing the stairs or storming in. The Tifa or Barrett uh, problem. Which option did you take? Um... I think I said we'll take the Tifa approach, but I still use the door first. You still use the door? Oh, so you went in, you came back out, and then you went to the yes. stairs? I didn't <laughs> yes. know you could do that. I, I tried, and it worked. So I said, oh, it can I, came in, and I go back out. Works fine for me. So if yes. you do actually go all in and go storming in, uh, you have to face a couple of security guards up front, and then in the elevator, you will have a bunch of random battles. Um, I mm. took the stairs, which takes forever because you're going up 59 floors by hand with a d-pad yes it yes. hurts as fuck at the end of that and um, i'm like is there a bug so is that the joke that it's an infinite staircase but no at the end uh... <laughs> no this is not super mario brothers 2 uh, uh yeah, yeah, yeah but uh what's interesting is i thought like a lot of games with like very large comically large staircases like that have like a lot of hidden items along the way there is literally one item in this staircase it is an elixir it is basically worthless otherwise the only thing you will get out of climbing these stairs is a lot of dialogue between tifa and barrett i am not even convinced that it's faster than doing all of the random battles that you would do if you just went in by the front door um but it's still interesting that he gave you the choice and it's interesting that it didn't like pretend that you went up 59 floors with like making you go up like three sets of floors or something. It's just like, no, you're going to yeah, have to yeah. go up 59 floors. Um, so I don't want to talk necessarily about each floor individually because they're not all interesting, but there are a few that sort of stand out. So on the 60th floor, there is a little mini game where you have to sneak past two sets of guards. I could do the first set of guards pretty fine. The second set of cards, they run and they have shorter uh, intervals where they are staying still and not doing anything. And luckily, if you cannot do it, which I could not, the game gives up after five failed attempts and it's like, oh, we killed all the guards. Oops. 
teehee, and then you move on. <laughs> okay, I didn't add that. I, I was so that. happy when I saw that. I was like, oh, thank God. I'm tired of these random battles because the random battles are taking longer than every failed attempt. Um, so that that made me laugh. It was pretty funny. On the 62nd floor, we're going to talk about something that you apparently lost a lot of time on. Yes. But before you continue, uh, the idea is after going through all the stairs, you need specific cards to go floor per floor. So those mini games is to give you those cards. Yes. There are key cards at the end of each floor generally that get you up. Sometimes it's two floors, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But in general, it's a couple of like one to two floors maximum. Yep. So on the 62nd floor, uh, you meet the mayor of Midgar, the mayors of Midgar. Yes. Um, what's funny is, um, and I don't know how much of this comes out in the French translation. Midgar is basically a giant pizza and the co-mayors of Midgar are named Domino and Hut after Domino's pizza and pizza hut. Oh no, I, I didn't get that. So that's kind of like an Easter egg. I think the I think Hut's name is changed in the English translation because who the hell is called Hut? Um, but in the Japanese version, they are called Domino and Hut, which is really funny. Um, and I think there is even like explicit mention of like a pizza shaped city. It's somewhere like it's it's like this weird Easter egg for people to figure out. Um, but that is not the reason why it, this floor is relevant. The mayors themselves are not particularly relevant. It is the riddle on this floor that is uh, relevant. To get the key card to get to the next floor, you're going to need to solve a weird riddle, which is like the mayor asks you for a password. And do they give you hints as to like how to figure out the the password in so, the French version? So the, the mayor says, if you want my card... I give you, if you want my card, you need to give me the password. If yes. you get it on first try, I also give you a gift, which is... Uh, the elemental materia, yeah. Then the assistant that's outside of his office is the one that gives you the ints. But you need to pay for the ints. Oh, so I didn't pay for the ints. That's why. I had to pay because I was like, what the fuck? I understood there was something about the rooms. And then it, I think you need to pay like five hundred coins, and then it's like a thousand coins. After that, it's a thousand five hundred coins. I'm like, oh my god! And I, was like, I ran out of money at the last level, more or less. And it's also weird because uh, the riddle is more or less: you need to go in each room, and there's four rooms, and they are on four topics. I think the one is science, one is space, one is uh, the army, more or less. More like, and like peacekeeping. I think that's what they call it. And the other one is more or less a uh, Arts of Urbania, like urbanism, something about the city. Maybe, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, something about like more or less that. And there's folder that you can find, like or books about each topic. And each room have a book that is not part of the theme of that room. Let's say like you're in space and it's talking about biology, which is part of the science thing. So then the number of the book is the letter, is the placement of the letter you need to think. But think about it it's in french so there's a lot of spaces and there's a lot of punctuation which you don't have to count apparently in the english version you don't count the spaces in punctuation that's what i figured out too as I, I guess because i was counting it that makes no sense so as i go see the options like no that makes no sense at all then i count I, without it and I'm like, oh that starts to make sense i think there's a room i was unsure but when i saw the list of words i'm like i'm sure it's this one but i have to like because i'm unsure i don't want to like lose my only chance to get the extra thing Mm. So I spend a lot of money, 
And then Indiana was right. So I should have just uh, followed my guts and then just do the thing. So, for example, like this is an example from the English script. Uh, you'll find a book that's like 16 Modern History of Midgar Space Museum, Volume 1. So in this case, like the letter associated to that would be the letter M. And then with the four letters that those books, uh, those books give you, you find the password that has all four letters in it. Yes. Which I think the password doesn't change. No, the password changes every playthrough. Ah, okay. Because why I had an int was because it was a mocha for me. Oh, okay. So, uh, oh, mocha, the, 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 more or less the energy. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mako. Yeah, Mako. So I was like, oh, I, let me guess. I'm sure it's this one. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go through the, the, the ints and everything. And it's like, yeah, that's the one. Interesting. So, yeah. Since I was playing in Japanese, this was kind of made harder and kind of made easier by the fact that this was all using kanji. Um, so a lot of the book titles, not all of them, were mainly kanji, which means like I had to basically look up every character in the thing and then piece the characters together to try and figure out like, is this a thing in the, especially if it's like kanji, I don't know. Like, is this even related to the field that I'm in the room for? Um, so that was not really, uh, that easy. But, um, the thing that sort of simplified it is that because kanji have specific meanings, I kind of just guessed lucky by going into <laughs> one room, figuring out the hint for that room. But what do you mean the end for that room? So I, I went into like, in my case, it was the first room I found. And it was a hint that I could actually figure out because I knew the kanji or whatever. And I just happened to know that like this kanji is only in one of the passwords. So I'm just going to choose that password. And I, oh. I, I locked into it. Okay, that's quite easy then. Yeah, so that simplified it. If I had had to do it the legit way, I probably would have gotten owned and not had the elemental materia. Um, but I got it first try because of that, because it was like there was the the kanji for height and it was only in one of the, the password options. So I just took that one and got away with it. Yeah, it's like it would say if there was the only word with Z in French. Yeah, like pretty much. So, uh, yeah, that's the library riddle. I think a lot of people get owned by this uh, on casual playthroughs. There is a similar riddle later in disc one that is even worse. Oh, but it is optional. So ah, that's good. Okay. <laughs> um, so next floor, once you've gotten that uh, key card, uh, is the 63rd floor. Um, I skipped this because it didn't look like you could actually do anything useful on this floor. And fair, well, there's nothing required on this floor. However, this is where the second all materia is, um, that I missed. Uh, you can fuck around with computer for quite a while to try to unlock oh, like yes. different doors and you can get a second all materia in the game there. Yeah. I tried to get it, but I think I, oh, I'm. I think I was able to go to two out of three rooms, but... Uh, yeah, d depending on how you trade the coupons in that room, you can screw yourself permanently and not be able yes. to open the last door. Which happened to me. On the 66th floor, uh, there is a very large conference room uh, where you get you can get a cutscene and listen to what the th uh, what's going on in there. However, the way you get to overhear what's happening in there is quite strange. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Funny, though. No, I think it's it fits with the infiltration 
mission. Yeah, definitely. It's like not really Metal Gear Solid level funny, but like kind of. Uh, yeah, kind of, yeah. So you sneak into the ventilation shaft via the bathroom and you just like go near the vent that is like peering over the conference room and you get to hear everything that's going on, which is pretty much, hey, hey we're going to, well, actually, no, I, I was going to say, hey, hey, we're going to blow up Sector 7, but no, they did that already. So no, I, it's like, hey, we're going to, no, I think it's because they were talking about we need to crank up the production for the other sector because we blow up Sector 7. Uh, yes, so we yes. need to make up for it. And then we found areas, areas, I'm having a difficulty pronouncing her name, but we found Earth, so we'll find the promised land, and then I think it goes more or less like this. Pretty much. Uh, so yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I forgot the sequence of events there, but yeah, there's that. So once you sort of figure this out, uh, after the meeting, Hojo, which is one of the scientists who works at Shinra, goes up another floor, so you follow him, and this is where you find, uh, well, a bunch of things. You find Eris, you find Genova, which is not explained yet. You just know that there is this containment chamber and there is a Genova in it and Cloud sort of has a moment, uh, which we Again. have also not talked about really until now. Uh, occasionally, Cloud has some sort of like psychotic breakdown and flashback thing where he talks to himself by writing text on screen. I don't think he talks to himself. I think it's assumed that he talks to somebody else who we and you don't know if it's a different persona or it's really somebody else i'm pretty sure he's talking to himself okay at least that's the impression i got from japanese version anyway so yeah you you see this stuff and you see genova and like there's a hint there that there is some backstory you're not quite sure about um and we will get back to that later at the end of the episode um but for now like you're just kind of just as confused as everyone else playing this game like there is shit happening. I have no idea what is happening. And I think that's one of like the jarring things that sort of makes FF7's story stand out as like some people kind of compare it to Metal Gear Solid in that it's so complicated. No one will ever understand what it truly means, but I love it. Uh, which is something I personally say a lot about Metal Gear 1, uh, Metal Gear Solid 1. I don't, don't know so much about the rest of the series, but... Metal Gear Solid 1, like, I can be like, I love weird cryptic bullshit that doesn't mean anything. And there is a lot of that in the Metal Gear series. But sometimes a it gets a little bit out of hand. A lot out of hand. Um, so, yeah. So, it, anyway, you show up. You save Eris. Um, though she sort of gets attacked by this weird thing. And then, like, the specimen joins your party, which is Red 13, which is like this weird dog thing. <laughs> yes. That's a good uh, description. Um, luckily for me, he comes pre-equipped with an all materia. So, <laughs> hey, finally, I <laughs> get the materia I've been wanting all game. Uh, and then you fight a boss, which is H0512. I have no notes for this boss. Oh, I forgot that boss. Yeah, it must not have been very impressive like all of the other bosses in this fucking... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so th that happens. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you sort of have to escape. Um, in the place where Eris was being held, you can get an enemy skill materia, which is one of the more interesting materia in the game. However, it is kind of really useless for the rest of the Midgar section, which is unfortunate, and I will talk about this later. There was a couple of them that I felt that were useless for the Midgar section. Some of them are not necessarily useless, but they have a low success rate. Uh... 
like the steel uh, materia kind of seems stupid, but you can get some very high quality items from like that exact floor if you just fight random enemies. Hmm. But you have to be patient, and I am not. Or at least not in FF7. In FF8, there's higher uh, success rates, so I tend to do crazy shit more often. Uh, so yeah, you, you go to the elevator trying to escape from like the carnage you just caused by um, saving Eris. But you get captured, and you get thrown into jail, which is another pretty frequent RPG thing that happens where your party gets thrown into jail. Uh, you sort of have this scene where uh, everybody talks to each other through the cell walls, which is another very stereotypical thing. Um, and then you go to sleep, wake up the next day, and you find out that your cells have all been opened. Uh, other things have happened that are kind of strange, like Genova is missing from her containment cha- chamber. Uh, Shinra, President Shinra, was impaled by a Masamune sword. And Palmer, which is one of the employees, saw Sephiroth, which is someone that isn't really mentioned is mentioned a little bit before this yeah, point I think, I think it was mentioned by cloud if i recall correctly. yes cloud like reminisces about like when he was a soldier with sephiroth and stuff right in his flashbacks slash psychotic break segments right and it's assumed that this guy is dead or this person is dead well, until that point mm-hmm. so yeah like shit happened <laughs> And That's then, yeah, then it kind of splits up into a two-part boss fight. So there is the elevator boss where Aeris Barrett and Red 13 fight this thing, which is apparently called the 100 Gunner and the Heli Gunner. Um, what you need to know about this boss is that this is the boss that you could have used sort of hinted at earlier yes. where melee attacks do jack shit because you are long range battling this entire thing. So Eris and Red 13's physical attacks, you can forget about those. Those are useless. Barrett can use his gun. Yes. I think you can run out of ammo in the gun. I think that happened to me. Oh, really? I think so. Uh-oh. I know at some point things looked very, very depressing for my team. And then <laughs> somehow I managed to save it. Wow. No, I died. Okay, well, I did not die on this one, but it came very, very close. Um, this is where I had a weird event where I double tapped through the materia thing by accident. Uh, Uh-oh. It's not a, uh, a controller uh, misfunction. It's me who was being a dumbass and mashing. Uh, <laughs> so I did not get to configure the materia correctly for what I wanted to do. And I kind of got owned because of that. I also didn't know I was going to be fighting a long range only battle. Like, I'm an idiot. Yeah, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm happy that my, the, because, uh, I think it's Cloud and Tifa, right? That stays behind, right? Yeah, it's Cloud and then Tifa waits next to the door. Yeah, although I don't think Tifa is in the other boss fight on the balcony. No, she's not. But I was like, oh, you know what? I'm sure there's something bad that's going to happen to Cloud. So that's why the first time I was like, oh, I don't need to reorder my materia. And then I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> more or less like oh crap okay yeah it, okay. in my case it was literally just like i was mashing too hard and i skipped the thing by accident which is dumb but somehow i managed to save it so memorable moments of this boss um there are not a lot of memorable moments in the boss fight so far so i think that's as good as you're gonna get uh 
And then there's the balcony boss, which is Cloud versus Rufus, which is the new person who is in charge of the Shinra Corporation now that President Shinra is dead. He is like right on time with the helicopter. Like I am here to be the big bad guy now. Um, and this boss battle honestly is so fucking stupid and easy that I had to go look it up on YouTube to make sure that I wasn't forgetting that it was stupid and easy. Uh, the guy literally has 500 HP. Uh, in comparison, like the hundred gunner and heli gunner boss fights combined, because they're, they're sort of a two phase boss fight. Um, yeah, they are. You have to deal 2,600 damage. So oh, only shit. having to deal like 500 damage to one guy is like big fucking deal. Like it's not hard. You like do like, I guess like two limit breaks and he's dead more or less. It's like not hard. But he's not dead. He's just a lazy bastard and just flees. Yeah, but I mean, dead as the boss fight being over right. is what I mean. No, I know, I know. But like that's kind of the the part is like he, he, you give him a lot of damage and it's kind of assumed like oh you're kind of winning here, so he's running away more or less, something like that. Um. So then you escape, uh, the Shinra building and all that stuff, and it's looking really dire. So naturally what Tifa does is she finds a motorcycle for you to ride. <laughs> and this is where we get to the first uh oh wait 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 before I get to the mini game there is also an awkward pause where you have to configure your materia. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Because there's going to be a boss battle at the end of this mini game which kind of gives it away but whatever. Uh so what happens is you get on this motorcycle with Cloud and I think you can choose two other people who come on with you as other party members to fight the boss, which is what you do during that uh, Materia Pause thing. And you play this terrible jank mini game where you drive... Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. Uh, where you drive this motorcycle down the highway and kill dudes with your big ass sword. I mean, I'm sure in 1999 or 97 or whatever, when this game came out, it was dope as fuck because you weren't used to playing like games with big sword dudes on motorcycles. Um, <laughs> however, we have evolved as a society since 1997 or whatever. Mm, are you really sure about that statement? Because well, in some aspects we have evolved. Okay. Um, and we expect better controls out of games than whatever oh, yeah, the, the fuck this is. The controls were so bad. There's like some sort of input delay or whatever that makes it terrible. There's a delay or a cooldown, like an invisible cooldown after you use your sword so you can't spam it. It's The controls are just completely awkward and bad and it's terrible. Um, so you're not, just... Not that, hard, not that hard to go through though. I don't know. My party members lost like maybe half their health throughout that mini game. Oh, I forgot. Because if forgot you get hit by the the big bads who are around you, um, you, you take actual damage that will actually have repercussions in the boss fight because you start with the HP that you had at the end of the mini game. Uh, so let's talk about that boss. That boss is called Motorball, and. This, I believe, is the only boss in this thing where uh, you are attacked from behind from That's by true. a boss. Oh, yeah, I recall that. That was the kind of the new thing with bosses. However, this doesn't matter in FF7 because FF7 doesn't care if you're in front or behind a boss to calculate damage. So it doesn't actually change anything. It's just cosmetic. What makes this even weirder is there is a glitch in Final Fantasy VII called the back attack glitch where if you are holding the 
uh, L1 and R1 buttons while the fight is loading in, uh, which normally holding down those two buttons will make you run from a battle. Uh, it confuses the game engine, and it has them revert to not a back attack. But again, since it's not actually used in the combat math, it's purely aesthetic. You can just choose not to be back attacked if you want to. But it's just weird this glitch is there and that it has no impact on the battle. And there are a bunch of like FAQs on the internet that say, like, don't forget to use the glitch because you're going to take extra damage. But it, like, there's literally nothing in the algorithm that takes into consideration whether you're being attacked from the back or not. Yeah, because sometimes it's like it's mixed, right? Some party members are in the front, some party members are in the back. And that can have some implications. Like if you have magic users, you generally want them to be in the back for various reasons. Huh, okay. But I don't think it matters in this game where you have three people. Hmm, okay. That's uh, something you gotta learn again. In some Final Fantasy games, you have like the front formation and the back formation. Right, right. Uh, and like their positioning can play some thing but like in this case like there are not enough characters to have like that formation thing and i don't think it actually matters also i would have assumed that like when you get like a back attacked that they the enemy will start like usually when you're first attacking i think there's something to that extent where the atb bars are like full but like it's Um. only relevant for like one attack i know that's how it works in ff8 i didn't notice if that's how it works in ff7 because this is literally the only instance of that and i was too busy being pissed about the mini game (laughs) (laughs) yes some some normal enemies will back attack you though that's what i've seen though oh i didn't run into any at all no and yeah so you beat the boss and then you're at this end of this highway and there's like this really nice scene where you're looking out until the sun uh at the sunset and you're like, yay, we're gonna fucking leave Midgar and go into this big world. And this scene is kind of interesting because um and this is stuff I heard about on via other retro gaming YouTube channels and podcasts that I've uh looked at FF7 content for, is when FF7 was originally being promoted, very little content was being shown outside of the Midgar section. Uh, huh. if you are familiar with Metal Gear Solid 2, that's all I'm going to say. Um, similar thing going on there. So a lot of people just assumed the entire game was taking place in Midgar and very little of the promotion material sort of implied that there was anything beyond Midgar, uh, which is why it was kind of a shock when people arrived. And especially like at the time, like the internet was still in its infancy and you couldn't share videos as easily. Like, People were like freaking out when they got to the end of the Midgar section and they were like, holy shit, there's an entire fucking world map too. Um, I mean, it kind of makes sense because the game is on three discs, uh, but you might have just assumed that that entire three discs was going to be Midgar the whole time. Um, so that was kind of an interesting reveal um, at the time. Nowadays, like I think more people expect or they see it coming or like in your case like if i tell you play the midgar section like you're probably going to assume that the end of the midgar section is when you leave midgar uh yeah yeah. it it kind of spoils the surprise but at the same time it's like i had to give you an end point at some place yeah and i felt that that wasn't that much of a spoiler if you see what i mean right but like if you actually go back to like the game's release like was a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I would have assumed if we did that in '97, then I would be like, "Oh my fucking god! Why did you tell me that there was an end? Like, there was an end section, like the Midgar section would stop." 
Yeah, and like nowadays, like YouTubers get the chance to play like 95% of the game before it's out anyway. So there's probably going to be a video somewhere on the internet like three weeks before the game is out. Like, look at this footage. Thanks to Square Enix for flying me out to this release (laughs) event so I can show you how to leave Midgar. Like that was one of the things that actually bothered me about Destiny 1 is they would fly out uh, YouTubers to play the entire expansion weeks before or sometimes months before it actually came out. And then they would release videos of every mission in the game before the expansion was out. So there was no point in really playing the expansion except getting to the end, to the new stuff that you hadn't seen yet, Uh, which was kind of frustrating. Uh, Luckily, they haven't done that for Destiny 2. So I I enjoyed that, but I have a lot of other bitching to do about Destiny 2. But this is not that podcast. So we've sort of reached the end of the Midgar section. At the beginning of the podcast, two hours ago, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned that uh, a lot of people call Midgar their favorite section of the game. Uh, a lot of people say that it is very representative Final Fantasy stuff. So I just want to take a little inventory of what is present in the Midgar section now that we've gone through it. Uh, if you were to build a checklist of stereotypical late 90s Final Fantasy features, most of them are present in the Midgar section of the game. You have one proper dungeon with the Shinra HQ. You have two mini dungeons and the reactors, although they are quite linear dungeons. Uh, you have eight boss fights. You have a scavenger hunt. You have backtracking to Sector 7. You have three navigational puzzles, the church barrels, the train graveyard, and the sector wall climb. You have the capturing and saving of a party member. This could arguably even be two if you count Tifa in the uh, honeybee manner. You have Final Fantasy tropes like train security, navigating the sewer, and party (laughs) ending up in jail. (laughs) You have uh, at least two janky minigames. I uh, only remember playing two. There might be more that I missed if they are optional. Uh, There's a squatting competition in the gym in the... uh, in the market wall market yeah i was looking for the word i knew it was w market or something uh and the motorcycle escape so you have janky minigames there are plenty more of those um, throughout the rest of final fantasy 7 i am really excited for like chocobo ra- racing and the snowboarding minigames which i have seen a <laughs> lot of videos are of but i've never played before they look like they have terrible controls too um so if i were to like review the midgar section as as like, is this a good sampler of the variety of activities FF7 has to offer? Yes. Uh, I think it definitely checks the boxes of like, this is what I expected from what people were saying about Midgar as being like this super like condensed form of Final Fantasy that you can consume in seven hours. Where I start to have issues with uh, the Midgar section is on a mechanical level. Uh, so like I said at the start of the podcast i am primarily motivated by aesthetic and uh mechanics and games the aesthetic to uh, midgar is pretty decent i think the unfortunate reality is that the 3d pre-rendered backgrounds have not aged well and i think it sort of decreases the appeal of the aesthetic i think if you go look at the ff7 remake trailer like you're drooling on the floor because it's what you wish it had looked like in 1997 or whatever uh so I, I'm definitely looking forward to like exploring FF7 Remake someday uh, because it's a lot closer to like what the vision was than what they could deliver with uh, 3D software at the time. Though I feel that this exact comment applies to a lot of stuff that's been released in the 80s and 90s. Definitely. But I feel like you see it a lot more for things with pre-rendered graphics 
because okay. even if you bump up the resolution, like those are like basically JPEGs that you're loading and you yeah, can't yeah. do anything. Uh, you can throw them into AI upscalers, which do a really good job. Like there are a lot of AI upscaling uh, tw- versions of the Final Fantasy, PlayStation Final, Fa- Final Fantasy games that you can download that look okay, um, but it's not perfect. But on a mechanical level, the thing is, even if you buy and obtain all of the available materia that are in the Midgar section, there are very few effective and interesting build options that early in the game. Like, if you ignore the fact that I missed two of the all materia uh, in a tragedy. <laughs> like, I bought every materia I could find, and I did not feel like I had, like, a decent amount of options for what to build. What really doesn't help is that so many things are weak to lightning that if you're basically doing anything other than running triple lightning materia on all your characters, you're, like, purposefully shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, and the thing is, materia are so cheap that you're almost dumb not to do it. Uh, oh, I, I didn't consider doing that, by the way. I, I realized that with Cloud's material, lightning material, that like, I would use it a lot, but I was keeping a diverse set of material while, uh, and didn't have to buy them. I felt that I ended up with a lot of it at the end of the Midgard section. You find a lot as items, especially if you're like going for completionist, like, I am going to try to find all the items everywhere and open all the doors. But, like, even if you just buy them outright, they're very cheap. And, hmm. yeah, they're, it, it feels like something so strong, especially for the first part of the game, should not be as plentiful a resource. Otherwise, it sort of trivializes the game. Um, There is one materia in this entire section of the game that is really cool. However, it is given to you so late in the Midgar section that it has no time to be relevant. That materia is enemy skill. It allows you to steal abilities from enemies in the field. However, the enemies in the field at the end of the game when you have the enemy skill thing are fucking worthless. Uh, so you're not going to be using it. Um, but enemy skill is very important for the rest of the game. Uh, but you have no chance to experience it in the Midgar section, which I think is a downside. Because there should be some spicy stuff for you to latch onto in Midgar. You know what? I feel that that is one of my letdowns. Like, it was hard for me to get what the Murtier will do. Yeah, because there are so limited options that it doesn't feel, especially like at level one, like level one materia doesn't feel impactful. Like, you see, like, no, the stat boost, like, plus three, and you're like, even okay. Even when you go to the menu, I'm not sure I understand. Like, I'm, sh- I'm sure when I looked at enemy, it says enemy. Here's your AP level. I'm like, sure, what does it do? Yeah. But then how can I understand that it's stealing uh, an, uh, like an attack from an enemy? That, that, that part I'm, was really missing. Oh, okay. I think in, in Japanese, it's pretty clear. It's like enemy skill. So it's like, you, you know, it's to steal enemy skills because that's what okay. it says. Um, okay, I'll have to look again because I felt that it was like just an enemy. And I'm like, okay. And enemy, I think it, what? I, I think in English, it's E skill. So it, mm. they still have to work within character limits and shit, but it, it's still pretty clear. And like, it doesn't make up for the mechanical lacklusterness of materia with good bosses. Instead, like you heard us complain about almost every boss and the only bosses we remember are the ones that had some gimmick that screwed us over. (laughs) Which is true. The elevator fight from the Shinra building, like that had the long range thing that you were not expecting at all. It makes sense. It definitely makes sense. It's just you're not expecting it, so you get fucked the first time you do it. And if you're not lucky, you're going to die. Uh, Pyramid, Farino, same thing. 
if you've never really seen this kind of mechanic before, uh, you're not going to think to attack it, or you're not going to realize that it's a targetable op- uh, object. Uh, one of the things I have a lot of trouble with with um, the 3D Final Fantasies in general is targeting things in the combat menus is the D-pad direction you have to press always seems to be relative to the camera and not just like up, down. Yeah, that is weird. I'm not sure if it's the camera or it's the camera plus which uh, character's turn it is. Uh, Well, I think it's like camera plus whatever the selected target at the moment is. You know what? I end up attacking my own yeah, yeah that happened to me a couple of times as well. I was like, what? First of all, it's like, oh, why the fuck, like, friendly fire is, uh, friendly fire is enabled on this game? I'm like, it's a fucking RPG. Come on. Well, the reason is, I mean, Final Fantasy games do occasionally have bosses where you are incentivized to damage yourself. So it is a mechanic that has come up in the past, which is why mm. you can target yourself. The other thing is like, you could be choosing a buff or a debuff. Um, let's say you get, um, I don't remember what the name of the status effect is, but a boss can put you in a status effect that makes you more likely to, uh, you take more damage, but you also deal more damage. I think it's frenzy or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could use a thing to, uh, to like bring down your attack or whatever or something to try and offset that. Like, uh, maybe not the best example, but there are like no, legitimate reasons that something that you would think you would only target an enemy with, you would target your own players with. So I understand why it's there. The problem is the targeting is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. And it's not fixed in FF8. Like, it's a little bit better. I feel like I was more frustrated with FF7. Um, I think if you're using the select button thing that shows you... um places you can escape and all that stuff uh if you do that within the battle you get a target menu however the target menu doesn't actually seem to use up down left right like a same thing it continues to just use the standard thing it just highlights the text of the name of the thing you're targeting which is not what i want what i want is to press in the direction that i think i should be pressing to target the thing that i want to (laughs) it's nonsense yeah and on top of that with the sense the sentiment of urgency because of the atb bars like I'm like, oh my god, I need to select an answer. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's not the right time to like just freak out and say, am I selecting the right thing? Yeah, like, and I... That's really bad. I tend to have the ATB bar like 85, 90% full. Uh, I mean, the ATB speed slider, which means, oh, yeah, I'm really feeling it. Um, and I think like the first time when I got Red 13, uh, when I finally had my all materia, I think the first time I used the all materia, I accidentally like spewed fire on my entire party it's like (laughs) congratulations you fucked up um so that's kind of like my my opinion about the midgar section as as this unit we were trying to evaluate for this podcast is if you are really into jrpgs if you are really into like the the mythos of final fantasy 7 like I mean, like to a certain degree, you have to be like invested in the story of FF7 to want to go back to FF7. Like, I think the Midgar section does the role that the people that FF7, uh, the people that enjoy FF7 attribute it with, which is this is a really great way to get like a bite sized piece of FF7 as long as you are not primarily a mechanics driven player. If you're a mechanics driven player, you're probably going to be pissed. Honestly, you probably just want to play FF8. <laughs> um, because even though it is not in the same environment and in the same mechanics thing, 
it's a very clear evolution of what the, the they were trying to do with the FF7 systems. They might have gone a little bit too far and that's another podcast. Um, but like the junction system in FF8 is very similar to Materia if you pushed it to 11 and you made everything from that system available from the very start of the game. You can exploit junction in the first 10 minutes of the game if you want to in FF8 and you can be completely fucking broken and destroy everything in the game within 15 to 20 minutes. Or Okay, let's be reasonable, maybe an hour. Um, if you know what you're doing. And I feel like a lot of the things that I find are missing from FF7 are present in FF8, but that's also part of the things that made FF8 less appealing to more story-driven and aesthetically driven players. Um, and from what I can understand, FF9 actually has this perfect balance of what mechanics players want and what like story-driven players want, which is interesting. So maybe eventually I'll get to FF9. I don't own a copy right now. I think you can play on iOS because one of my colleagues, I was talking with that, so the two of my colleagues, and one of them was like a big fan of 6, and the other one was a big fan of 9. And uh, Aslan, my colleague that is a fan of the uh, FF9, uh, was showing me the iOS version. So I know you want to play it on the PS1, but there's an option for that if you want to play it on iOS. It's true. Um, Do you have like some thoughts you'd like to add to that sort of closing section before we get into like the last section which is like do you keep playing Disquine? <laughs> oh yes i feel that what surprised me the most and i kind of came to that uh, a bit earlier in the like at the beginning of the episode but the feeling that this game this the midgar section felt to me more of an adventure gear than a typical rpg i don't think that's been clear but i am not the biggest rpg fan in the world like Come like literally not. Uh, I am a story-driven person for sure, and uh, it kind of sometimes creates a funny discussion between Nick and I. And you've seen that in a lot of our video games episodes. But to me, this section felt literally like an adventure game, and I think one of the main reasons it is because of its linearness. Every time that the story was, first of all, the story is completely linear in my book uh, for that. There's a couple of sections that there's kind of like, you can wander around, let's, let's say at the wall market. You, you have a couple of like, uh, mini quests that I didn't know about, like getting those six, uh, things when you get the dress and everything, uh, to cross just as a woman. Um, that could be something, but I felt that in typical adventure games that are story based that I liked, like there's a bit of that. There's puzzles to do to go from one section to the other, but like the, the puzzle is part of the linear story still. And that kind of, I don't think it rubbed me. Yeah, I think it kind of rubbed me the wrong way, mainly because I was not expecting it. So every <laughs> time there was like mini battles in between all the sections that you just, like, you just like encounter enemies. I was like, that doesn't fit right. Like, it's not that, right? Like, I would have seen that section and I'm not sure if they're going to do that with the remake, but I would have seen that as like a first person or third person game literally and if they want to put like like let's put the full brew of content in uh, several hour games like i could see them doing that but that's not final fantasy to me still so that's why i kind of came up with mixed feelings about the midgar section because while uh it was okay let's put it this way it was not bad not great it was a kind of okay game it was uh good to play what people can consider a classic for sure. It kind of left me a bit 
I wouldn't say it left a bad taste in my mouth, but never, neither left a good taste still. Because I was kind of expecting, quote unquote, the typical RPG. Uh, what I remember for FF10, but especially what I remember a lot from the Tales of games, which from what I remember, they are like typical turn-by-turn RPGs that you have an open world or you go from areas to areas in an open map. Uh, you can take shortcuts or you can go in that section and then realize, oh my god, I'm in the end of the game. I'm about to get just die. And, and I was kind of expecting that. So I'm not sure if that would be something I liked. Though, it gave it gave me enough RPG feeling that it was nice to say, hey, I kind of played quote-unquote an RPG in seven hours, even if it's just one section. Like, it felt kind of complete in the end. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting what you're saying about the linearity of the game because what, what I do want to point out is that um, there are two other games that get slapped with the linearity stick a lot in the Final Fantasy series. And usually in a negative way, uh, there's Final Fantasy X, which is also very loved, but is also very linear. Um, X2 is kind of the opposite, where X2 just basically says, oh yeah, you complain about linearity? Well, fuck you. You can choose your quest in any order you want, um, which is actually pretty cool. It's one of the things I enjoyed about X2 when I played it. Um, the other one is Final Fantasy XIII, which is like, if you despise... Uh, linear games do not play final fantasy 13 there is a reason it is called a hallway simulator um people hate final fantasy 13 with a passion because of how linear it is and yet when you compare like the linearity of 10 or 13 to the midgar section like they're all pretty much linear in the same way the main Mm. difference is that like 13 and 7 do not give you access to a world map that you can wander around on pretty sure 10 does uh it's linear because you have like limited optional content but it still exists it's just limited in 13 there is no optional content until you get to the end of the game (laughs) really in midgar there's very little optional content and you know what i think like all of this is i'm not saying it's bad and i think you're making a point that it is an argument that is used against those games and you know what like i think like what i'm seeing here is kind of usually what i like on linear games they're like molding more on the story of the game and less about the mechanic which is let's be honest a line like that's why it's called linear and here what i felt is i was expecting i was not expecting it to be linear mainly because of my assumption are rpgs and at the same time, my linear brain was like, but the story is kind of meh. Like, I'm not clicking with the story. And if I need more information, I kind of need to power through that section, literally. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because um, FF4 had these two extra games that existed. I think it's... Uh, I don't remember the name of the second one. There's Final Fantasy IV, The After Years, and I think there's... It might be Final Fantasy IV Epilogue, I'm not sure. Um it's something like that, basically. Um, they were games you could play after FF4 to get more story about certain characters or whatever. Um, but what's interesting about the Midgar section is it's practically a prologue to the real FF7, which starts after the part we play. Mm. Because that's when all of the like the parts you expect out of the RPGs you've seen and played, of the world map and all that stuff, like you literally saved 
your final save at the world map. You didn't really do anything. Yeah. Yeah, Same thing for me. We were going to start like the real adventure. This was just like, here is the background context you need for things that are going to happen later in the game. And this is like the thing that bothers me about a lot of RPGs is you often hear like, Oh, it gets good about 10 hours in. Oh, it gets good about 15 hours in. In the case of Final Fantasy 13, Final Fantasy 13's fucking tutorial is no joke 20 hours. Um, It's like, okay, you know what? It was nice when I was like 15. Now I'm 28. And you know what? I have other shit to do. Seriously, like, sometimes I go to games, like, I'll go again on how long to be. I was like, oh, 10 hours. Oh, my goodness. Like, I love to play games, but like 10 hours? Like, I have to find 10 hours in the next few weeks. One of the games I'm most excited to play later this year, I'm saving it for Christmas because it is a Christmas story. Um, Okay. But the game is Parasite Eve. It is a square RPG for the PlayStation that takes place in New York City, um, which funnily enough, Final Fantasy VII was supposed to take place in New York City, and then they took all those assets and they made Parasite Eve with it. It's 14 hours long. Hmm. I'm very excited to play a 14-hour-long RPG that is very highly rated and all that stuff. Like... I really like tightly edited games that feel coherent. And that's the problem with the RPG genre is that like, I loved what I played of persona five, but I'm 50 hours into it and I have 50 something more hours to go and it's not worth it. I I just gave up. (laughs) I literally that it is literally the example I looked at today. I was like, so I think I would just want to see the PSN uh, plus deals. So I, when I, every time I do that every month, I go look, I look at my list of faves to see if there's deals. And I was like, Hey, for the last few months, like P4, uh, P5 is getting like uber cheap, like 25 Canadian dollars. Because they're re-releasing it at the end of the year. Oh, really? There's an extended re-release coming out soon. Okay. So I was like, you know what? I'll look at how long to be. I was like, a hundred hours. I, oh, fuck no. <laughs> oh, fuck no. When I think about it, like, P5 doesn't need extra content. Like, I'm sorry, the extended (laughs) re-release don't want it. It's like Monster Hunter games where um, there's the vanilla version and then a year after the vanilla version launches, they make the G version, which has all of the hard content in it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'm never good enough to do the hard content. So I just buy the vanilla versions for like five bucks, literally the year after it comes out. But that's exactly what I thought. I was like, of course it's like $25, like a year and a half or two years after its release. Nobody has fucking 100 hours to play except the core gamers that paid, that paid it like 80 Canadian dollars at the release. And that's it. Yeah, I got it for my birthday like a month after it came out, two months after it came out. And like, it, it's good, but is it sure 100 it is good. hours good? No, I think I've seen pretty much everything this game has to deliver within the first 50 hours, which is why, like, if you're one of those people who is, like, latches onto story, like, you are much more likely to actually make it the entire length of the game because presumably you are so invested in that story that there's going to be a payoff at the end that is worth it. Mm. And the way people talk about FF7, I feel like it might be worth it to play 38 and a half hours of this thing. But... The thing is, the story was so vague for the first seven hours. You're like, how long do I have to get strung along before the story tar- starts to become concrete and something I can actually like reason about? I feel it's at the spoiler that my friend told me about. No, they didn't mention what it was. They just mentioned that at some point, I think they said in the first third of the game, there's a spoiler. And then I asked you and said, oh, yeah, it's at the end of CD1. I, I knew exactly what you were talking about. I don't want to know yet, but 
I think that that to me, I am a curious person by nature, and I, that to me kind of is my motivation to maybe continue, which brings us to, I guess, to the last section you want to talk today. Yes, yeah, so it is... took a while to get there, but finally looking ahead to the rest of Disc One. <laughs> so uh, I should point out, I haven't played the rest of Disc One. The only reason I know what happens in the rest of Disc One, as I mentioned earlier, like still two hours ago, is that I watched Tim Rogers' fantastic Let's Mosey uh, translation analysis of the English-Japanese translation. And he basically said, I'm only doing disc one, which is perfectly respectable because A, it encourages people to go play the rest of the two discs that are left. And uh, you get enough of a sense for how to interpret the English translation from the first disc to do the same thing as you play for disc two and three. When I said the story synopsis at the start of the podcast, you said things became a lot clearer for you as to what the story was for this game because you had played through this thing and you were like i'm not sure i even know what the story is no but i kind of understood that there was this group avalanche that were pissed about this dictatorship more or less yeah sort of like corporate overlord that has a monopoly on everything right which more or less at that point is called a dictatorship uh and but yeah it's kind of like also a criticism on capitalism, which I, like, I, was, I was kind of lacking this vibe. But then it's a surprisingly like, relevant story for 2019. <laughs> yes. and But then it was like, there's this other guy that we don't really know about, but that was part of the story that is like also bad. And then we need to like, now that he killed the other bad guy, and now we need to go kill that guy. It was like, okay, sure, sure. Okay, that's, I guess, what I got. And that's why with your synopsis, I was like, Okay, yes, there's this, these people, they, then they go on a tail and then make, like, it click all the port, like, all of the, the nuggets I received through those seven hours, I kind of, like, piece them together. Well, the, the thing is, like, I don't think it's established at this point that Sephiroth is bad. Like, uh, ostensibly, Sephiroth killed the Shinra president. Like, I mean, isn't that more or less what you guys were trying to do already? Like, there was a couple of dialogues saying that, oh, but we're worried that he wants to do what the Shira guy wants to do, aka own the world, more or less. So we need to go meet him. Yeah, yeah. But so like, they, they, they what were you going not... to do if you were going to meet President Shinra? Like, you don't have very many options aside from like giving him a bunch of money you don't have to try to bribe him to not do that. Like, or kill him. Yes, I agree that to that part. But I'm saying like. Right now, the intentions are unclear at this level of the game about what Sephiroth wants to do. I think that's fair. I think Sephiroth being like unclear intentions is a fair characterization of what it is at this point in the game. Which, at that point, I kind of assume it's unclear, so I guess he's a bad guy. But I wouldn't be surprised. Yes, I know he laughed, but you know what? Like, I wouldn't be surprised that's the intention, and then you have one of those typical moments, like, you thought he was a bad guy, but in the end, he's doing that for good reasons, and then you realize that, like, late in the game, when you thought he was a really a bad guy, which, to me, that's also a classic RPG thing. That I don't know if it happens, but I doubt it does. Um, uh, But yeah, so, uh, I I just want to say, hmm... You want to say, mm. you know, I'm trying to say it in a way that doesn't spoil anything. Okay. But don't spoil anything. Just say it kindly. Well, it's also hard for me to talk about it since I don't know what's coming up on discs two and three. Like, oh, that's true. the hard thing. I can tell you what I think knowing the ending of disc one, which is it fills in a lot of the missing details that you are. I hope so. 
I, I think the story becomes a, a lot clearer with the rest of the thing. Like you, you get more information into Sephiroth's intentions. Okay, you know what? I know you don't want to spoil anything, but knowing what's coming, do you feel that you want to continue playing that game? Or like, I kind of know what's going, I kind of assume where this two or three are going, so it's like, you know what? Job done. I know enough about Final Fantasy VII, and, and I don't want to spend maybe 12 hours, because we said that the first disc was about like at the like 12 to 13 marks out of the 40 ones. So I'm going to do this... I'm going to use this cop-out millennial strategy. <laughs> oh my goodness. But, but answer my question with a question? No. No, okay. no, no, no. no. I, I'm going to answer your answer. It's just not going to be the answer that anyone who likes Final Fantasy VII is going to want me to answer, which is okay. this game's story has me with a lot of question marks that I want the answers to, which is not something that regularly happens to me when I'm playing video games, to be perfectly clear. Like, if you've been a longtime listener to this podcast, which you are by now because it's been two hours and 35 minutes... <laughs> You know that I usually do not really give a shit about story in video games. I play for the mechanics. Now True. I'm in a tough spot because this game is, at least right now, mechanically unrewarding. And I don't know when it's going to start being rewarding or if, like, is enemy skill the peak of the game? Like, if it's the peak <laughs> of the game, like, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to go to YouTube and watch all the cutscenes. And I oh. think I'm fine with that. Huh, okay, that, that's an answer I was not expecting until you said the million up. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's where I was going with that. Like, Which it kind of uh, goes back to my episode about me kind of like starting to like Twitch, even if I've been a while since I watched Twitch stuff. Yeah, well, the problem is like if you go watch like FF7 streamers, like they're all like the people who are like me obsessed with mechanics, except they're trying to build their characters in like whatever this limited environment is when they should oh. be playing ff8 or ff tactics or a game with actually good mechanics um but what i want is literally just like j just give me the story content and i don't <laughs> care and to be honest maybe i've screwed myself by playing the playstation one version because the hd remakes on ps4 on ios have lots of features to facilitate those kinds of playthroughs where you're just playing through for the story um there's uh, there's a button that makes you immediately level 100 with like 999 HP and 999 MP and max limit break all the time. Like you, can... uh, what? I didn't see that button. I, I'm fairly sure it's in the iOS version, but if not, I think you click both sticks on the PS4, and if you do it accidentally, you're fucked. Uh... Oops. Uh, I've seen, my friend showed me those buttons on FF9 that it helps you. I think like infinite life or something like that. Uh, those are definitely the... in ff7 i've seen screenshots okay. of them i don't know if they're necessarily in ios but they're at least in the pc and ps4 version because the only cheat button was to disable encounters there's also that um which that's also funny with the context of ff8 because ff8 remake is coming out uh remaster is coming out soon and one of the things you can unlock in ff8 is a thing that disables encounters and now they're just making it open by default, which kind of defeats the purpose of that entire GF optional boss battle. Um, but oh well. Yeah, that that kind of pisses me off, but whatever. So yeah, I, I mean, I could just like do that and like get the iOS version or the PS4 version and just like click both sticks and be level 100 and not have anything to do with the mechanics at all and just watch the cutscenes. But if I'm going to do that, I might as well just watch them on YouTube. It'll take less time. I can skip through the videos instead of mashing X. Like, 
That's a fair point. At that point, I, I or I can go read the wiki. Like I, I don't care. Like I, I'm primarily interested in the answers to the questions. It's kind of like when I was watching Lost. Like yes, there is a certain degree of entertainment I can get from watching Lost. I can also just go lose hours on the theories pages on Lostpedia, and like I, I don't know how many hours I've lost on Lostpedia. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the conclusion I'm at. I think if you were interested by the synopsis that I proposed, you aren't losing anything by getting to the end of disc one. And by the end of disc one, you will know if you care or not to play the rest of the game or watch the rest of the game if you can't bring yourself to play with the mechanics. I think the worst thing you can lose is maybe $20, $25, depending on your currency. That would be it. Because I, I would strongly suggest at that point that I am surprised that RPGs don't have kind of a renaissance moment on mobile because mobile is the perfect format to them. So uh, Square Enix, by doing remaster, quote-unquote, on them on iOS, I think is the best idea ever because you can just like play on it on the bus or stuff like that. I'm quite late on podcasts. My podcast is these days, so I don't really do that. But like I've seen a lot of people just do that more. They play on mobile, and those games where you need to invest time like they're good to just like play whenever whenever you have time. Or yeah, we had an episode about that. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. Go listen to my episode on handheld game design. Yes, pointing downwards towards the description. <laughs> pointing downwards, but yeah, I feel that if you want to go to disc one, and I think I might, Yannick. Uh, uh, the the thing that's weird is I don't know how the iOS version does the disc delineation stuff like yes. does it does it fade out and say like disc two <laughs> like in the middle of the thing like i don't know i haven't played one of those games uh so i'm very curious how it does it but it will be very obvious when you are at the end of disc one i guess that i'll see the spoiler and be like oh my god and i'll text you yes but yeah so right now i'm still unsure but i think i will especially because it's on ios i can like and you know what and you've I'm got not... like what four hours left yeah because my play time my Playtime is at 7 hours, 21 minutes. Yeah. So, so you don't have that much time left on the first disc. Right. And yeah, and I guess I could do that. And maybe you know what? I feel that I remember enough of the story that I could maybe left, left it dangling. Maybe come back in a month and then continue. Sometimes with RPG, if you do that, then you lose. Oh, I needed to do this quest and that quest and that quest. And then you're fucked. Yeah, especially if you don't have like a quest tracker or something to remind you exactly what the thing you were supposed to be doing is. Like sometimes you just have to start your game over because you don't know what you're doing. Which more or less happened with when I did my last game of Persona 4. Yeah. I think I played for a month intensively and then I left it dangling for three months and I was like, oh, crap. So, yeah. But I feel that with that, either you just play like maybe 15 minutes per day, if that's what you have. And if not, then at least at least with that, you just kind of remember the story. and. You can go through it. So I'll try my best. I'm not sure. I'm sure it will be follow up in future episode. But the idea is I try. <laughs> We're gonna have to like spoiler out the follow up though. No, I can just say like I've played through the C- CD number one. Mm. Maybe we'll have to make like a post show that spoilers we with. Could do a post show for yeah, that, that, but would be I cool. think I what I say for follow up is either I really did it or not. I guess I should answer the question that we asked at the very beginning of this episode, which is has this game aged well which is the question that i ask about many retro games uh (laughs) these days and the thing is 
I think on a technical level, like it definitely shows its age. Like the everything we mentioned about the graphics, like it's hard to ignore that. Especially like the low poly cloud model that is completely gross and disgusting. It's hard to ignore that. I think the story, as I mentioned, it is surprisingly relevant in 2019. Yeah, I'm surprised a story that was written for an RPG in the late 90s somehow manages to feel just as relevant today as it probably did back then for different reasons, but still very relevant. Mechanically, I am not in love with this game. Like I've said throughout this entire episode, like that's mainly what I'm driven by. My difficulty in this is I see what everyone who plays, who played this game saw in it, but I'm not sure it's for me, but that doesn't make it bad. I think it is very good at nailing the aspects that those people latched onto. And those things are not anchored in time. Whereas a lot of other games that I criticize for not having aged well, like they are primarily being driven by nostalgia and the relevance in the history of video games more than they are in any kind of substantially good things about the game itself. This has a lot of substantially good things about the game itself. They're just not the elements that I look for in video games, but I'm still willing to say that this game is mostly worth the hype. It it is not very overhyped like a lot of other games that I criticize. It mostly lives up to the hype, provided you care about those elements, which are mainly like being story driven and to some level atmosphere as long as you can like dissociate the setting from the aesthetic treatment on screen like the actual environment of midgar if you imagine it is a very wonderful place well wonderful maybe isn't the greatest word for kind of grim dark cyberpunk world that's not really the word i was going for but you know it it leaves a lot to the imagination that you can think a lot about midgar in your head and see a lot of beautiful visuals um, and a lot of these are being realized by Final Fantasy VII Remake. Um, and I, I think to a certain degree, it doesn't help that I've seen the Final Fantasy Remake uh, trailers because I see those visuals now when I'm playing through the game as well. So yeah, pr- provided you care about the same aspects that people who like FF7 cared about, you will find something very substantial in this game. Hell, as I mentioned, this is one of the games that has gotten me to care about a story. And it is not something that happens very often. So, oh yes, relish it, Square Enix. <laughs> Though I don't yeah, think the I I don't think the reason I care about the story is the same reason that other people who like FF Seven care about the story, which is very interesting to me. Mm, yeah, but I Maybe. can't talk about that because that would be spoilers. Yeah, I feel that we have to have a post episode at some point to talk about that. Now, you know what? You're good because now I'm quite curious to know what you think about this. And that could be a good motivation to do this one. Yeah. So basically, conclusion is there's a reason this game is hyped. It's not necessarily the reasons I usually play games, but I see why people loved it. And... I am curious to find out more, whether I will find out more through gameplay or through watching YouTube videos to be determined. Um, and I have a bunch of other PS1 games that I'm currently more interested to actually play than to uh, just speculate about the story on. So I'm going to go play those games and eventually I might get to finishing FF7 or watching its story on YouTube. But I'm, 
I will let you know when I do one of those things. Um, but it's not a super overhyped game like a lot of other ones. And uh, it's two hours and 47 minutes into the recording, so we should probably do something like the outro soon. Yeah, yes, if you are done with conclusion. Yeah, I'm starting, I'm starting to get a little loopy, so we should probably end the show. For sure. So, I am completely sure at this point that Yannick will have a lot of links in the show notes. And you can find those said show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash 119, so 119th. If you want to go through our back catalog episode, we mentioned a lot of our back, a lot of episodes from our back catalog today, uh, especially mainly our episodes about video games. You can find this back catalog at limitlesspossibility.net. If you want to follow the latest news about the podcast, you can find itself on uh, Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at, at Lukonush. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-G. And you can find Yannick at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.